You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking... (laughs) We're going to be talking about Season 8, so that you don't have to. Simon. And I'm JR. And before we get into season eight. <laughs> it's going to be an all nighter. It's going to, yeah, this is not going to be 60 minutes. I have the strangest <laughs> feeling. I got three film reviews and an audio review to do as well, if we get to them. Okay. We were supposed yes. to get to them last week, but it didn't happen. Or even the week before. Who knows? Um, no, I had, or no, I was a party to a conversation on Twitter. That involved David Kitchen. And yes, David, I just winked at you on audio again. (laughs) In which they were talking about death in heaven. Right. And there is a certain fraternity, mostly in Australia, who seem to think that death in heaven is the worst episode of Doctor Who ever. Really? And my conjecture is that it's not the worst episode ever, but that there's probably one particular thing that they take offence to that Mm. colours their judgement on the rest of it. And in in an experiment to find out whether this is the case, or whether something like this is the case, I asked David to send me an email going through basically the whole episode or his issues with it point by point. Oh, good. So I have this hugely long email, but I think this is an interesting experiment. Yeah. Because I think this happens with other stories. It's not just this. I think, and actually, you know, I wasn't going to bring it up, but the book Hating to Love. And Matt, do you want to make a revelation about Hating to Love? Well, you you asked me about half an hour ago to write seven essays for it. Because somebody's (laughs) just dropped out. Yes. So you've come aboard on Hating to Love. So the so, people who are waiting for Hating to Love, it's still going to be a little bit longer, but it's on its way. So now I have to watch The Dominators again. It's <laughs> about as much fun as the Sporran made after sick. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but my point obviously is, do stories with a bad reputation thoroughly deserve their bad reputations? Yeah. Or are there mitigating factors? Okay. And sometimes it's not necessarily mitigating factors, but sometimes it's whether there are things in those stories that... Because fans look at things differently from viewers. Yes, yeah. So sometimes there'll be things in episodes that will upset fans that viewers will just not even notice. No. Okay, so so we turn we turn to that universally hated story, Death in Heaven. Well, <laughs> yeah, but Death in Heaven came up, so okay, I thought okay. it was an yeah, interesting. Because yeah, no, 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 he asked me if it was going to be in the book, and I said no. Why would it be? Mm. You know, Death in Heaven's a story that seventy five percent of the people who rate it on Gallifrey Base gave eight out of ten or more oh, to. Yeah. And that's Doctor Who fans. <laughs> you know, Doctor Who fans tend to rate things lower than usual people, mm, not mm. higher. So I've got a long email from David, which begins thus. And I'm not going to do this in an Australian accent. Yeah, please, please, please know that. It starts thus. Good evening. Following up. See, I told you I wasn't going to do an Australian accent. Are you doing a New Zealand accent? I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. No, I'm, we're, we're very aware of that. 
Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, they were taking the mickey out of my Australian accent on 42 to Doomsday the other oh, way. Oh, were they? Yeah. They're allowed to, aren't they? They're, they're Australian. Yeah, so they should recognise it. Were they doing it in an English? <laughs> were they doing it in an English accent? Yeah. They didn't dare. Well, I'd like to see them try. Yes. Was, he, was it like being? Yeah, you were hoping to be accepted like David Attenborough with a host of gorillas. <laughs> oh, you can't it, talk well, about well, now. Seems like suddenly <laughs> we've lost. We've lost the whole. Of the, we're, we're trying to soothe the Australians' troubled brows with their problems oh, with death and heaven. Am I going to get? You've just completely. Am I going to get my own Twitter pylon? No, I tell you, no idea out of the three. I tell you, Matt Barber. I tell you, Matt Barber, why we're trying to soothe the Australians' furrowed brows. Last last time I was on, I was nice about Australians. Yeah, but I'm not quite so sure that they saw it that way. I love the Australians. Some of my best friends are Australian. Oh my God, he's brought out the some of my best friends line. That <laughs> actually, means he's actually, in trouble. Actually, it's a lie. I don't know any. <laughs> well, you're about to meet David okay, Kitchen. Okay. Good evening. <laughs> Following on from Twitter last night, I'll attempt to give you an honest and proper reply to my feelings on this story. Although my question about it being in the book was, while I little tongue-in-cheek, very genuine, I know all the friends I have in Doctor Who fandom down here can't stand it, and the diddly dumb team marked it very low as well. If I recall correctly, Matt gave it a zero, and Doc didn't disagree with him. Although that's Matt, who hasn't watched any of Series 8, so he probably gave it a zero out of zero. And that's a different Matt from me. Yes, to be clear. That's Mm. Matt Charlton of Diddly Dumb. Oh, okay. There's another Matt. Yes. Blimey. Gosh, the world is full of Matts. Mostly tucked behind people's doors. That makes me sound rather creepy. (laughs) Like I'm I'm going to be in your house tonight, tucked behind your door. (laughs) I don't think the guys at the podcast with a K liked it much either, so I thought it might get a gig in your book. Anyway, they don't like anything. No. (laughs) I'm the first to admit that a large part of my dislike for this episode is purely emotional. I pushed very, it pushed very hard against my very old school or traditional instincts for the show, and indeed it felt like Stephen Moffat was doing so deliberately, ramping many of his tropes up to 11. I know that afterwards a few of us were chatting about it, and each had the feeling that this was Moffat sticking two fingers up at the old school fans. Is that a rational response? No. But given that each of us felt that way, I contend there's something in it. Okay, I'm breaking in for the first point here. I've made this point before, but sometimes with episodes, and Stephen Moffat seems to do this particularly, you'll throw in things for the old school fans, like references, or even having Cybermen coming down the steps at St Paul's, which is, you know, designed to evoke a certain emotional response in classic series fans. But then... There's a whole other school of fandom that have come to the series from the new series, and you throw things in for them too. And sometimes the things that you throw thing, throw in for them, the you know the overtly emotional beats, for example, will stick in the craws of the old school fans. But this is not because you're putting these things in to upset the old school fans, but because you're putting these things in to, you know please the new school fans in the same way as you've thrown in other things to please the old school but, fans. But also, arguably, as a, as an old school fan, I mm. quite like it when they don't do the things that I'm expecting as an old school fan. Mm. And it's even better when they look like they're going to do something that I expect and then they subvert it or twist it. 
And I think that's that's what Stephen Moffat does. He he's builds up to the point where you think he's going to go retro and then he undercuts it. Mm. And I find that quite exciting. I don't find that... I find it unsettling, but I find it quite exciting as well. I don't watch television to be to be comforted and to to have exactly what I'm expecting happen. And strangely, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But then he acknowledges that slightly. Yeah, in, but, yeah. I don't think it's good for any relationship for, for both partners to play ball all the time. Cool. Oh, keep, I don't know what kind of a relationship we're, we're, we're you're talking about. about no, 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 but if you're with not somebody only, who just agrees with you all the time, then what, what is... What is the point? It's going to go stale. So not the only whole does point of Simon not like Australians is also. <laughs> oh, no, I did not say that. <laughs> it's strawberry. Well, oh of... dear, it's me and bloody Ken. Well, part, this week. Well, part of the point of making Doctor Who is to be provocative. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just well, being the, tame. The part of making anything is to be slightly provocative. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just writing something that's really cosy that. Yeah, well, anyway. well, there's no point. Yes, yeah, yes, but I think the letter will probably say that it's the direction that provocation took. Yes, uh, if indeed it was provocation. Well, no, there are other things as well, and there's a. I mean, I, well, we'll get to it. Okay. As a starting point, David continues. I'm not a fan of Missy as a character. I find that Miss Gomez pictures the performance in a very arch and over the top sort of way that probably hits the mark for a lot of fans, but isn't to my taste. I'm more a fan of subtlety i.e. Linda Day in Press Gang. I also struggled to fit this characterization in with the Master as we knew it. Indeed, I put the view that the Master incarnations are like VHS dubs. At first the copy is pretty good, but by the time you've got a copy of a copy of a copy several times over, you're a long way from the original. This is in contrast to the Doctor, who in all incarnations seems to be linking to all the others, so each is a first-generation copy from the original template. Gomez is doing Sims, doing Roberts, doing Ainley, doing Delgado, and to me, it's a bridge too far. I got to say, at this juncture, that according to uh, the way the series is understood, and I'm not sure if this has ever been put down in black and white, but most people's understanding of the Master is that Roger Delgado was in fact playing the thirteenth and final in incarnation yeah. and that the master you get in the deadly assassin is the roger delgado yeah. incarnation yeah. gone to decayed mm. yeah, yeah basically gone to the same place as yeah. david tennant went to mm. in um sound of drums or last yeah. of the time lords yeah only sort of only done better <laughs> and more <clears throat> yeah and, I, and, and so the master the idea is the master after he after he anthony ainley's it with tremors he well, becomes steadily more and more insane. Yeah, and, and changes his character. But I well, think that's, that's where I was going to go. Oh, Each time he gets a fresh body, he yeah. gets a fresh body. But his mind yeah. is just a little yeah, bit further absolutely. removed we, from we've that gone body. In a psychological direction. But I, I think that's also slightly and just just to butt in, and the TV movie as well. Look at what happens to him there, and you've yeah. got to imagine that both Sim and Gomez come after the TV movie too. Mm. So he just gets further and further away from. But that's also slightly misremembering what, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about yeah, a little while. Yeah, yeah. what Delgado actually is. I mean, Delgado isn't a subtle performance. He's actually quite a sort of... He's very outrageous. arch. He's but very arch, arch in a different kind yeah, of a yeah. way. Yeah, in a yeah, sort of bond, bond villain rather yeah, mirroring than... mirroring Pertwee. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm also, says David, one of those people that finds Osgood annoying, so already I'm not on side with the guest <laughs> cast. He's screwed. <laughs> he says the guy from the thick of it fitted well into dark water but I thought was totally pointless here and probably should have been killed off sooner 
It's worth pointing out, I suppose, only that Osgood is essentially Stephen Moffat's version of Elton from, um, mm. uh, you know, Love and Monsters. Yeah. So it's not like it's an entirely original thing. She's, it's a, just con- a, she's a conduit between the fans and the show. Yeah, it's just essentially. It's just a different take on something that Russell T. But, Davis did. And she's also quite a well-acted, <clears throat> well-rounded character mm. yeah. who develops, particularly in this story. Well, I mean, dies. other than the costumes... <laughs> dying is a development. Other than the costumes, it's not like she's sort of praying at his feet all the time or anything like that. No, not it? at all. No, it could have gone that way easily. Yeah. 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 It could have gone more um, uh, Lee Evans, couldn't it? <clears throat> I thought you were going to say Lee Rawlings. The, op- <laughs> <laughs> the opening with Clara pretending to be the Doctor... Well, I've got a very big point here. Okay. The opening with Clara... <laughs> well, put it away. <laughs> <laughs> the opening with Clara... Oh, conduits and openings. <laughs> oh, my God. For the fourth time, I'm going to try and start this sentence. I'm gonna, I've got to interrupt you now. No, I won't, I won't. The opening with Clara pretending to be the Doctor, followed by the adjusted credits, seems to me to be too clever by half, especially for what is effectively an idea that goes nowhere after the first few minutes. Indeed, it seems like the production team saying, look at how clever we are, pretending to trick all the viewers, and that adds to the redundancy. And I think this is the perfect example of what I meant by allowing your emotional reaction to lead you to misjudge what's going on in the story. Mm -hmm. Because when Clara pretended to be the Doctor, that was absolutely crucial to the entire plot of the whole episode. Clara, pretending to be the Doctor, allowed her to have a conversation with the Cyberman she didn't know was Danny Pink. So that later on in the episode, after she's told that Cyberman that the Doctor's the most important person to her, it becomes entirely incumbent upon him to prove that he's the better man, even after the point at which he realises he's not going to survive the episode. And as we've said in the previous podcast, it also sets up... uh sets up a theme for future episodes as well, as, as Clara as the Doctor. It does, yeah. And I really like the way they did it, because it meant that the next time trailer on the previous episode was a massive double bluff. It was. It, it was able to disguise everything that was going to happen in Death in Heaven and also give you this kind of this kind of twist. Well, it led you to think it was going to be a story about one thing, when yeah, in fact it yeah, turned out to be a story yeah. about something else. Same as they did in uh, Heaven Sent yeah. and Hellbent. And I really like this idea of using the next time trailer as a sort of a cliffhanger, as a kind of a, as a, kind of a fool you cliffhanger. Mm. And if you're going to have an issue with them putting Jenna Coleman's name first and picture of Jenna Coleman in the opening titles, when that's just a bit of fun... That kind of shows oh, that you're I, watching it in the wrong way because that's just a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, it's like baubles at Christmas. Yeah. <clears throat> he oh. says, and and that I think is you know his issue with the episode. By that point, he's already presumably. I mean, I'm sort of second guessing what he's talking about here, but presumably by that time he's already fairly irate with the television. And he's not any longer making these connections it's, in his head. So his head's going to explode by the time he gets to the Brigadier bit. Yeah. I think it does. Yeah, okay. We'll find okay. out. <laughs> yes. He says, I think the realisation of the flying Cybermen is just too cartoony to be taken seriously. I'm normally not bothered by the visuals, but when it looks this silly, it can't help but detract. Which which comes from... Sorry? Doomsday anyway, doesn't it? They Fine. don't do it any different way. 
Um, yeah, did they fly or did they get sucked into something in Doomsday? I can't remember. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, no. You're but right. it can't. I mean, it's just it's just doing what Doctor Who always does and picks up a Marvel thing. Yeah. Or picks up Iron Man and just runs with it. I think he's talking about the actual standard. effect. Oh, okay. Which is, I, I don't know. It's one of those things. If you're moaning about the effects in Doctor Who, you're an old school fan, <laughs> or you should be watching Star Wars. I don't know, but you I know, know, I could have, I could have moaned about the effect. Well, I did moan about the effect. Did I in the eleventh hour with Prisoner Zero in the room? With, oh, possibly. With Amy. Possibly. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he yeah, says... changed. I know. <laughs> he says, more broadly, I think the plot is a nonsense. I don't understand the need to take the minds of dead people, separate them from their dead bodies, and then put them back into the dead bodies. I also don't understand how the, con- how the conversion process is supposed to work with the dark water creating Cybermen from what? Again, it's just the wrong side of magic to work for me. And even if you accept the magic, why can't it just turn people into Cybermen? Why all the Matrix malarkey? It also was, to me, very unclear just how many dead bodies are being cybernized. All of them? At what level of decomposition do they not get cybernized? What happened to the minds of cremated people? And does Missy have a need to have the mind in her Matrix thing or not? That also seemed to be inconsistent. Right, we have to get into how this works now. And... <clears throat> well, no, I think... I can't remember how it works. But I done. think... It works absolutely logically in right. terms of the story because what you've got to remember is that this is not Mondas Cybermen or Telos Cybermen. Mm. This is essentially Missy taking the design of the Cybermen and making her own. As if, for example, yeah. Ford took the design of you know the Lexus and decided to make the Lexus. So th- I mean, this- yeah, whether you, whether you um, take it as something crucial to the story or not is this idea of people basically becoming Cybermen of their own free will. Well, that, that's a, cr- that's and a big... And is it also that the Cybermen the this, in this story don't contain brains, they contain minds. So the brain, the mind is uploaded into the Matrix yeah. and beamed back down into <clears> the, the cyber body. Yeah. So that, because that that's how right? Missy is doing it. Okay. okay. So if you're going to accept that Missy is going to be doing it slightly differently yeah. from the way the Cybermen would do it if they were the Mondas Cybermen, yeah. then what you have to do is substitute yeah, X that she, Missy does yeah. for and Y that the Cybermen she's would essentially, have done. She's doing it a roundabout face in as much as she's using the cyber technology yeah. to create an army. And in, the, yeah. and in so previous Cybermen stories, they're humans that are slowly developed or very rapidly developed piece by piece, whereas this, she's created a Cyberman, an empty Cyberman shell, mm. and then just imported or downloaded So there are humans two mm. issues mm. here. Why does she need the mines? Mm. And the answer is the Cybermen always have the brain of the yeah. original inside, yeah. Yeah. because the brain, if you turn off Essentially, what the Cybermen do is turn off the brain's emotional function yeah. and use it as a sort of control device for the machinery, right? Mm. Yeah. So what she's doing is using the mind instead yes. of the brain. Yeah. To... And she's hybridized it with Time Lord technology. Exactly. Yeah. Matrix interesting, as well. In order to make it point. slave to yeah. her. Yeah. Interesting point of the Cybermen. Some kind of philosophy. The Cybermen. They've got. It's got to be a person. Yes. Or what was a person inside that shell? Otherwise, they might as well be robots. Exactly. Yeah. So the Cybermen have always used the brains. Mm. 
Missy's just exchanged that for the mind. Yeah. It's right. part of their evolution as well. You know, obviously being a brain, then they've got the option of. Well, it's how the it's obviously how thought. the cyber technology yeah. works. Mm. It needs mm. to have that organic thinking component. Mm. Even if you turn off its facility to creatively think, it still needs a thinking component in order to drive the machinery. The other, <clears throat> well, no, still on that point, why upload them first? before downloading them afterwards because at the point of cyber conversion it needs to be a living brain yeah so what she's doing in order to create her army in order to make sure there are no you know nothing goes wrong is she has taken the mind mm. before the point of death and then allowing the body to be dead and then creating the cybermen around the dead body in order to make sure that nothing goes wrong because she's doing all this um What's the word when you do it from somewhere else? Remotely. She's doing all this remotely. That's and also it. she needs the matrix as part of the process. So yeah. she has to have the minds uploaded into the matrix before she can download. In order to enslave them to her. Yeah. Because otherwise yeah. they're cybermen who would be uh, independent of her. Yeah. Now, he then goes on and talks about at what level of decomposi decomposition and what happens to the minds of created, cremated people, etc. Okay, the, on the cremated point, that's that easy. Made. The, the mind is already taken before they get that's, cremated. For me, that's the most yeah. disturbing point in the story, where they say, yeah. please don't burn me. Yes. And, it's the, and obviously awful, it's the mind but... that's the important thing. Mm. And then, at what level of decomposition do they not get cybernized? Well, presumably if their mind hasn't been taken before the point of death, mm. then either... Well, this is how it, it, this is how it works between the people who do get cybernized and those who don't. If your mind's been taken... They yeah. cybernize you. If your mind wasn't taken, and you're not one. You're not one of the people who rises from the grave. No. And this is why only some people rise from the grave because not everybody's mind was taken. Presumably, and we also know that Missy's been at this, not just in 20th century or 21st century England, because she's, yeah. she's, she's there in the Victorian times uploading, and mm. then she was there in the future uploading. So she's been traveling around so this quite a, a bit, building an army. Exactly, she's collecting as opposed to harvesting, yeah. isn't she? She's, uh, yeah. Um, there was one more question here, and oh, and this is the issue of the dark water and the magic, and where do the actual metal parts of the Cybermen come from when the Cybermen are in the grave, and and this is a thing that's in not just Doctor Who but other science fictions, and this is illustrated absolutely perfectly in Heaven Sent. If you can accept in heaven sent that every time the doctor dies a new doctor who is the same doctor is born out of the teleportation process mm. then you have to accept that the teleportation process doesn't involve breaking his atoms down at one end and sending those atoms up to be reassembled at the other end but breaking his atoms down at one end at which point those particular atoms get dispersed into the atmosphere sending an electronic signal through to the other end that will then take atoms out of the atmosphere or whatever is surrounding the other end of the teleport where atoms and particles and components can be assembled from and assembling a brand new body at the other end. It's mm. like 3D printing, exactly. only more, more advanced. And, but, but a 3D printer will have the materials in yeah. the 3D printer. Yeah. But in Doctor Who... And in Star Trek, if it works the same way in Star Trek and Blake yeah. Seven and mm -hmm. everything yeah. else. Mm -hmm. And we see in Heaven Sent that it works this way. Those 
parts have to be assembled out of basically atoms that are yeah. latent in the atmosphere. Yeah. It's how, at the end of um, this episode, the kid gets to come back from the Matrix because the kid doesn't have a body in the Matrix, but the Matrix, when it teleports him back to Earth, assembles him a new body out of the electronic mm. data that it's obviously collected about mm. how his body is composed. Tron. <clears throat> yeah, there you go. That's 1982. So, mm. so it's none of this stuff is illogical. Mm. It's just that it's not so spelled out that you know. There's also the visual riffs as well, isn't there? You know, it's the whole thing of the water draining down. And you see, yeah, yeah, it's a cool um, effect. That's yeah. the, that's the bottom line. Rather than, I mean, we can explain and we can explain it, mm. but it doesn't really matter that we can explain it. But it's, it's a really good moment in the story. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, you know. and it's not that it's in any way inconsistent than anything else that's been going on in Doctor Who as these <laughs> other. And for example, in Stephen Moffat's very first Doctor Who story yes. that everybody loved, as far as I'm aware, The Empty Child. The nanogenes are assembling gas masks on people's faces out of thin air. Yeah. And at the end of the story, the lady who lost a leg, her leg grows back. Now, it doesn't grow back out of flesh and sinew sort of growing down a leg. Yeah. It grows back because the nanobites well, have taken atoms out of the atmosphere and built a one. And this was done much more in the original series. So we're about to talk about Terror of the Autons. Who put the auton in the safe in the first place? The director put the autumn in the safe in the first place because it made a really good cliffhanger. Um, this is also how the re food thing about Star Trek, how the food replicators work in Star Trek from year dot. It's basically just mm. a standard thing in science fiction and it's very consistent with everything that's been going on in Doctor Who. Yeah, food machine. <clears throat> he says, this is a, and this is in brackets, so this is a side point. He says, this is a similar criticism I throw at the power of three. If you're going to have a third of the population if you're going to give a third of the population a heart attack, it is just too out there to wave a wand and say that they're all better ten minutes later. And that's a fair point if you read the story yeah, entirely is. literally. Mm. But my conjecture with Doctor Who is half the time you've got to read it symbolically. Yeah. And the idea with the heart attack thing is, you know, if it had been six 25-minute mm. episodes, you could have devoted an entire episode to Jeffrey Palmer having some kind of illness, an entire another episode somewhere else, all to Doctor Curing it. All it needs is a side comment saying, oh, there's a bit of a recovery period for anyone who was <clears throat> affected by it. But what you've got in The Power of Three is five or ten minutes in which to show that these cubes are going to do serious damage to a serious proportion of the population, mm. and that the Doctor is, or, you know, the Doctor and the Companions are going to in some way be able to cure that before they go on and attack the problem at its source by finding the cube spaceship. Mm. So you have to kind of read this stuff symbolically rather than entirely literally. Or, if you're not prepared to read it symbolically, you just have to accept it, suspend your disbelief and move on. Otherwise you could have problems all over the place in Doctor Who because there's an awful lot of this stuff in the new series. Because of the 45-minute format, it's more important to tell a good story than it is to tell one that entirely adds up in a spelled-out way. Further to this, says David, <clears throat> I didn't buy into Missy's motivations. She's giving the Doctor an army. Why? I really felt that that came from nowhere at all and wasn't explained and made no sense given the character in the past and now. What did she actually expect the Doctor to do? To compound this, I didn't like the Doctor's idiot-with-a-box speech. To me, this is another example of the show looking up its own arse and making it about the Doctor, the man, not the adventures of the Doctor. And I hope I'm consistent here. I hated it when RTD did it as well. 
I think in this in this instance, Missy does this because the doctors. Are yeah, there are two points. Completely, there. So on the a, complete, point of a completely new regeneration cycle, and the doctor himself has said, "I don't know what sort of man I am. Am I a good man?" And this is the whole point of this this season. So by this time, this is the thing that makes him realise that he is the doctor and he is a good man, and he stops being nasty to mm. people. Mm. And what's what and I think, and she's insane. This is what well. sets me apart. Yeah. But yeah, what yeah. I find really intelligent about the writing here is that she's taking that. Mm. The fact that this doctor's not quite formed, doesn't know what he wants to do. Mm. She's taking that and she is saying, right, instead of doing my usual thing where I just say, doctor, join me, mm. I will proactively do something that makes him have to do make the decision without it being just in the form of words. Mm. It's very easy to ask somebody to do something and for them to say yes or no, mm. but that doesn't actually mean it's going to happen. If you actually present somebody mm. with something, it's like... I don't know, to, to come up with a really stupid example, it's like if you're on holiday with your partner, some really exotic location, and just on the spur of the moment, you think, oh, I'll pop the question now. Mm. And you're on a beach in Malibu or whatever, and you say, will you marry me? And she might say, oh, it's lovely here. Look at the sun going down yeah, over the horizon. Yeah, yeah. I've just had 15 vodka and tonics or rum and cokes or whatever. And she says, yeah. Then you get back to England and she says, do you know what? I was drunk. We were in a really nice place. Let's think about this again. On the other hand, if you and your partner are at that point in your relationship, you've got a ring, mm. and you actually take the ring out of your pocket, having planned to pop the question, and 99 times out of 100, if you're planning to pop the question, your partner's generally aware of the fact that it's coming and knows what their answer's going to be. They're not going to be changing their mind a week later whatever answer they give and it's a little bit like that with missy and mm. i think this is why it's really clever because up to this point the masters have all been men <clears throat> and to generalize horrifically mm. about the genders and you know okay, go on <laughs> go on <laughs> oh, yeah. men tend to be uh, a lot more black and white than women women tend to have a far subtler appreciation. And I'm saying tend because I'm yeah. generalising. Yeah. But men, it tends to be either yes or no. Mm. But with women, uh, in my experience... You're talking about relationship between them. You're not talking about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're talking about the relationship between the two characters. Mm. But a woman will understand things in far more subtle ways. Mm. I tend to find. Yes. So I think if you suddenly make the master a woman, she's not going to do exactly the same things that a male master did she's going to have a different way of doing things and when we talked about this before i used the word nurture as mm. opposed to mm. brute force and it's far more subtle than that and that's just a way of simplifying the concept but instead of trying to bludgeon the doctor into submission what she's trying to do is persuade him into submission the thing is the doctor's got past form he's the, this is the man who used the moment he literally pressed the button mm. so she's thinking <clears throat> What can I do? What can I tempt him with this time to make everything right? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build him an army. So yes. she, which isn't, which isn't entirely subtle, and no. <laughs> that's that's pretty, you know. But yeah, I see what you. And then, you and then you get onto the speech, the idiot with the box, and the idea of that speech is that it, it's the opposite of all the other speeches with the doctor you've had before. 
All the other speeches with the doctor you've had before, the doctor has been saying, this is who I am. This is what mm-hmm. I do. This is what I'm going to achieve. And this speech is all about the doctor saying, no, hang on a second. I'm not the person who goes out and tells everybody that I'm going to save them. I'm just the person who goes out. And if he finds a problem, I'll muddle through some way to solve it. Mm. And I think it's wonderfully written and wonderfully acted and is the perfect end to the scene in which Missy is presented the Doctor with this situation. I mm. think it mm. is entirely logical, both on a character and a plot, you know, front. I think it works mm. perfectly. But I'm guessing that if you're not appreciating the story and not necessarily following the character developments and the plot and developments... Not, and without being... Yeah, and not appreciating the writer. The subtleties are going to be lost. Back that far. The subtleties are going to be lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I found the stuff with Danny very hard to swallow, says David. I'm having to remember the details here more than a year on, but if I recall correctly, there was more nonsense about love conquering all. So Danny wasn't totally cybernized or something similar, and he then gives up that emotion, makes an emotional speech to the other cybermen, which makes no sense, and they all fly off. Didn't work for me at all. But then I've been uncomfortable with Moffat's comments about the military across the series. Yeah, fair enough about Moffat's comments about the military. I get what he was trying to do, and I don't think it was achieved very subtly at all. No, okay. And I don't, and I also. It's also an opinion at the end of the day, isn't it? I also think with Stephen Moffat in Series 8, because Stephen Moffat has this thing, which I'll discuss a little bit more when it gets to the end of the email, about making the audience do half the work. Mm. And I think by maybe accidentally sledgehammering the military thing right from the start where um, in Into the Dalek, Journey Blue asks if she can come aboard and he says, no, you can't, you're a soldier. Yeah. That's too much of a sledgehammer for something that you're only going to pay off in subtle ways at the end of the series. Mm. If you're going to sledgehammer it that much at the start, you need to sledgehammer it at the end. And if you are going to let the audience do half the work, then you're reliant on the audience agreeing with you, to be honest. So you're going to lose anyone who doesn't agree with you. Yeah, that's also a fair point. Mm. So I think I don't think that part of the arc worked particularly well. On the other hand, the stuff with Danny and retaining his emotions when he's Mm. a Cyberman. Mm. We see in um, Army of Ghosts, we see... uh, What's the character called? She cries a... Uh, Yvonne Hartman. She cries a... Well, basically, she goes rogue. Even after her conditioning, she breaks through the conditioning. So it's not without precedent in the series that Cybermen can break their conditioning if, you know, a powerful enough emotional uh, thing happens to Mm -hmm. them. And this is the same at the end of Closing Time. And I think the end of Closing Time works fine, actually. Yeah. Uh, You know, as a father, I'd like to think if Closing Time happened to me, it would end the same way. But you... So, that's Danny. I think think the fact that Danny breaks through his programming and retains his emotions even after... Finn, The Force Awakens, Stormtrooper goes rogue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So even after um, Clara's turned off Danny's emotion chip, he retains his emotions. I think that works perfectly, and it's consistent with what we've seen in the series before. He says, "And yes, I hate, loathe, and detest the cyber brig concept, 
But I stress, I already thought the story was ridiculous before this, but this was a moment that tipped me from this is rubbish to this is rubbish and it makes me angry. And that's fair enough. Mm. Yeah, the yeah, cyber rig. Some people love it, some people hate Can it. Can I just make a point? Okay. That earlier we were talking about the master, and people think that the decomposed master is actually Roger, Roger Delgado's master. Mm. Yeah. All decomposed and looking a right state. Yeah. So why aren't people offended by that? I've made this point before, actually. Oh, have you? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get that at all. No, it is. It's a because much it's a loved char- character. It's a character. Played by an actor who's died. Yes. Just about three or four years after that actor's died, being played by somebody else as a decomposing corpse. Mm-hmm. There's I think precedent for it in the 70s, and it happens again. I think it's know. probably the character rather than the actor. So the master, you can do that with because the master's a villain. Yes. Whereas the brigadier, both the actor and the character, are sort of intertwined as being sort of lovable, big presences in Doctor Who. Okay. It's but, a very fine line, though, isn't but, it? Yeah, but I think giving him a, his own personal tank... And sending him off into the sky yeah. is actually a pretty good, joyous way of... And they've already commemorated him in the, in wedding, the of uh, wedding River Song mm. in a very touching way with, yeah. with the shot of the brandy at the, in the nursing home. And that was the... Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll make the point again. I think the Wedding of River Song was a dedication to the actor. Mm. And I think Death in Heaven is a dedication to the character. Yeah. That's fair. Um... <clears throat> it's, it's this um, yeah, this idea of the corpse inside is the difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah like people can't just, get away from it. It's not that. like he's suddenly been turned into this immortal, super-powered but, machine but, that can go and off the, and do good. But, the, but the, the fact that the Brigadier manages to cheat death yeah. and and becomes a sort of weaponized version of himself, mm. that's exactly what the Brigadier would would want. That's yeah. what the Brigadier and would do. And of all the people, of all those people who were cybernized, Hmm. He was the one that broke through. Yeah. 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 I will say, you know, my own personal opinion on this, and I've said this before, is that it, mm, to my mind, it probably wasn't in the best of taste. I appreciate the thought. Mm. I think the um, realisation of it perhaps left a little bit to be desired. So that's okay. kind of my... But I'm, I'm not offended by it. But by the same I token, was I'm too not busy being very, very choked up by it, and I've never been as choked yeah. up by it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, honestly, I literally sat there, and I've heard I this went, from oh other my, people as well. Oh my god! And I couldn't talk. I about the wife. But it completely got me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe that's. I mean, I do have the emotional capacity of spinach, so it was, it's not surprising <laughs> that I found it. I I, got, I was choked up slightly while I wasn't choked up, but I found it touching. The yes. Wedding River Song one, I found touching because that was close to the death. Yeah. And as JR said, it was clearly, it was clearly a tribute to, to the actor. Yeah. But but this this the Brigadier's always been a faintly comical mm. character in Doctor Who, mm. and you know, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> oh no, no. for me, it, all, all the things flick through my head all at once is, oh my god, yeah. who saved? Who saved his daughter? Of course yeah. it was him. Who's got through this? Of course it was him. Yeah. And oh my God, it's him. That all happened in a matter of seconds. And the, yeah, yeah. I just welled up and that was it. Wow. I also think that if you put that to Nick Courtney before he died, and I don't know this for, for a fact, but mm-hmm. I get the impression he has a sense of humour. And yeah. you told him, I mean, he'd already asked to be killed off in the series in Battlefield. Mm. Anyway, I so, heard... so to be to tell him that this is how he would be brought back 
I can't imagine he'd go, oh no, that's that's bad taste. I heard bloody marvellous. Yeah. I but, heard um, yeah. somewhere from someone something that suggested, and I don't know this for a fact by mm. any stretch of the imagination, that suggested that before they started filming the episode, that his family had been asked, right, and not to give their permission, but, you would, wouldn't but to you? sort of give their blessing, yeah. yeah. And uh, apparently, and if and if I understood right what was said, because what was said was, you know, beating around the edges. Of this. If I understood it right, his family came back and said, "Yeah, that's a nice tribute, basically." Yeah. So. I'm not entirely sure that happened. I think, but that's I think what's what important like. is that no matter what we say, it's not going to change how no, these people no, 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 feel about no. this. It's not going to yeah. change how we <clears throat> feel about it, but yeah. I think it's important that we understand each other's side of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, David goes on. Following that, you have Danny alive somewhere and talking to Clara in the end and then sending the Iraqi boy back. What? How? Even if I make the leap that the minds are all still in a matrix somewhere, how does a body come back? It seems at this point the story is just doing whatever to give us the feels it wants us to have. Well, we've obviously already dealt with that. I will agree that the exchange between the Doctor and Clara is very well done, as was Capaldi's reaction at not finding Gallifrey. (laughs) A shame, though, that it was not the final Clara scene. So... I guess in summary, I think the plot is nonsensical rubbish. It's hard on the aspects of Moffat's style that I most dislike, and it then feels like it's trampling on my childhood with an interpretation of the Master that I think is terrible, and the Cyberbrig. The combination of those takes it from a calm, I don't think this is very good, to an emotional, I hate this. And I acknowledge that when you're not enjoying something, you swallow plot holes and conceits a lot more easily than when you're not. Much of the problem with this episode is that each problem I had with it fed the following problem until you reach the cyber brig. And yes, I acknowledge that it's all personal opinion and that if you like Moffat's style, this would seem like his greatest hits. I hope that gives you some insight. I know that you're a fan and see this through different eyes to me, and that's fine. Sometimes different people have different views. Why is it, for example, that I can't bear to watch tennis but will happily watch every single ball of a five-day cricket test Yet others love tennis and couldn't watch an over of cricket. Regards, David. Fair point at the end. And this is where I was going to go with this. And this is why I think this is an interesting experiment. Because we've just been through David's side entirely. And we've responded to every point with something that I feel is consistent with Doctor Who of the last five, if not ten, if not fifty years. And it all comes down to what I mentioned about 10 minutes ago about Stephen Moffat wanting the audience to do half the work. Yeah. I think wanting the audience to do half the work is flattering the audience. I think it's saying to the audience in order... And I don't say this to as a slight on David's reaction. Mm. I think asking the audience to do half the work is saying to them, if you get to the end of this episode and understand it as well as having followed it because i think understanding something and following it is two different things i think it's quite easy to follow what's happening you don't really need something to make sense to follow what's happening as long as you can tell i've said this before as long as you can tell who the bad guy is and he gets it in the end you've basically followed the story following the plot if you're having to do half the work on the way to following the plot then that kind of takes for granted that you want to And I think here's the issue. If you're not a fan of what Stephen Moffat does and the way he writes his Doctor Who, and I'm not talking about 
this particular aspect of it, but some of the other things, like the the fact that the characters talking quips a lot of the time. If you're not on board with that, you're not going to want to follow the plot. Mm. And then you're going to have a reaction like David did to this episode, whether that was the reason for David's reaction to this episode or not. And and the thing about cricket is it's a much more complicated game than tennis. So tennis is very simple. It's just two guys on on a court. Whereas cricket, I mean, you you live for the five days, it grows, it's got complicated rules, which once you get into it, it becomes quite exciting. Um, so I can fully understand the last point as well. And actually... Just to cover the... Well, the, no, the, actually, the that's an points. interesting point, because what you're essentially saying is... Moffat's who is cricket. <laughs> Moffat's who is cricket, yeah. whereas, for example, RTD's who was tennis. Mm. So you'd think that David would be on board with Moffat's yeah. who more yeah. than... Davis is who. Yeah. It just goes Be to consistent. show. <laughs> it just goes to show that different people will have different reactions to different things, and I think what I've hoped to, not necessarily prove, but it's a turn of race. What I've hoped to prove here is that if you're on board with Moffat who and you follow the story and you understand it and you don't have issues mm. with any plot points, that's not because you're seeing things that aren't there. Mm. but because you're prepared to do the adding up that Stephen Moffat's asking you to. Whereas if you yeah. don't, I and this would be my conjecture, if you don't, and if you're not doing the adding up that Stephen Moffat's asking you to do, mm-hmm. that's not because it's not there to be done. Mm. Because mm. it is there to be done. Mm. But I think you're missing out on a richer experience because I think sitting there and watching a television program that's asking you to do some adding up and doing that adding up and yeah. arriving at the same place is a more rewarding experience. You know, I go, I go back to that first episode and I remember at the time having to ask you what was what was going on with the water. Oh, really? you know, I thought it was, when I said it's a visual riff yeah. you know, with the water coming down. Mm. I thought it was literally there cosmetically. I wasn't aware the water was actually doing anything. Mm. Oh, you thought the water was just blanking out? Yeah, like invisible ink sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, and there was just it was just there for a big reveal, you know, and and obviously there was more going on, but you know, you know, what, all I'm saying is that yeah, I ask questions. Mm. I love Moffat's Who, yeah, but you know, I do ask questions. So, but what I don't don't like hearing, and I think it's a shame, is is preconceptions that build up, and there's this and to big, be fair to David, this monster of Moffat that's being created of, you know, wants to look clever all the time. Really? Just what's the will? No, he just have a writing. Yeah, he actually does write clever Doctor Who. Clever got to do. He's not trying to look clever. He's just trying to do something right in the way that he wants to write. If you don't like it, it's fair enough. Mm. But he's not trying to look clever. People say, "Oh, he looks smug." Well, that that comes from the preconception that he doesn't deserve to be where he is. Yeah. So therefore, his success is built on something he doesn't deserve. So therefore, you perceive them to be smug. But yeah. well, that's not what's going on. He does deserve to be where he is because a lot of people like what he does. But if you don't like it, that's fine. People are successful for reasons we don't like sometimes. Mm. Um, I, I don't always say about the X Factor, Simon. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm guilty of that. And to be fair to David, I don't think he's anti Moffat. I think just this one particular episode yeah, rubbed him up abs- the wrong way. Absolutely. So all these issues that he's had with this episode... Mm. Are issues just with this episode rather than Moffat's Doctor Who mm. in general, mm. I believe. It did leave a nice taste in his mouth, and that's yeah. a very fair and very natural reaction. And I think, to be fair as well, the first episode, Dark Water, I think the whole thing about the cremations and what happens to people after they die, which I think is quite consistent 
with the concept of the Cybermen, because mm. the concept of the Cybermen is, is what happens to your body after you die. It's just that they kill you in the conversion process, essentially. Mm. I think this is just a modern way of trying to achieve the same body horror. But also, it's really easy to see why some people would take against that. And I think going into Death in Heaven, mm. if you've already got an issue with Dark Water, that's not going to help. I took against it. Did you? Well, that, the, the, just that initial bit where, because it's pretend, they're pretending that people can still feel and still experience mm. after yeah. death. And because they don't resolve it immediately, yeah. I did think that was crossing over. A boundary. A, yeah. a boundary, because I, I was imagining I people agree. watching it who yeah. had... Who would, and I think they needed to, they needed to to prove it almost immediately. Do you know what? I found it disturbing on a personal level, as yeah. opposed to just a disturbing In general level, yeah. where yeah. I can compartmentalise yeah. it. Yeah. It affected how I felt about, well, I suppose about death and, yeah. and, yet, and what happens to people. To me, and, I'm thinking this is Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. I'm more thinking if you've got a six year old who's just you just lost the grand. But I would contend. Yeah. Yeah. But I would contend that if they're six and they don't understand that Doctor Who's fiction, then they probably don't understand what's happened to the person well, they've just lost. I know I can appreciate completely. Somebody would hear that and wouldn't take all that stuff on board. But anyone who's lost family yeah. members yeah. and has been through that situation, I've had family members cremated. Mm. Then obviously I start thinking, yeah. oh god, that's a really horrible thought. Yeah. Yeah. But then but, again, but I'm not going to write it off for no. the sake of that. But then, you know, it was designed to be that because yeah, it's yeah. designed to put the horror, you know, and when I say the horror, I don't mean the fear, mm. but, and the, you know, the sort of powerful fear of the robotic man, mm. but I mean the actual horror, which yeah. is from the 10th planet back into yeah. the Cybermen, the horror of How what they're actually doing. have we been doing. saying about the Cybermen just weren't you, scary anymore? People keep saying they should go back to the Mondasian Cybermen because they were actually scary with the body horror, and essentially that's kind of what Stephen mm. Moffat's done mm. in essence with this episode, yes. with this story, and you know, I and I think if you don't see it, and again, it's about adding things up for yourself. If you don't see it, you don't see it, mm. and that's fair enough. And you know, you can't make people see things that they're not willing to see for themselves because that's half of the half of the joy or problem with these episodes is it's not something that somebody can sit next to you on a chair and explain away you either you're either adding it up as you go or you're not and if somebody tells you afterwards what you should have seen you're probably not going to accept mm. that because you didn't do the maths for yourself mm. you'd need to be doing the maths as you're watching the episode the very first time in order to be a part of the process. Because if somebody tells you afterwards, they've been a part of the process, but you're divorced from the process. Mm. And so, in spite of all that, I think the last 50 minutes was probably entirely wasted. Yeah. But I think it was still an interesting <laughs> yeah, experiment. No, so we're an hour in. Should we start the podcast now? <laughs> no, because it goes, we've given both sides a voice. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully we haven't kind of, we've not assassinated, I don't think we've assassinated the letter in any way. I think we've just sort of said, well, that's how you see it. This is how we see it. Well, David, yeah, David I hope it quite, didn't sound David like was, that. No, David was quite balanced in the in the letter. Yeah, I mean, he gave caveats and and said where it was his own opinion, mm. and it's fine. So I do a very quick audio review. Okay, um, Nightshade, the Mark Gatiss book, mm. his first um, brush with Doctor Who. It's in. I think it was his first brush with Doctor Who. There's mm. nothing before that. It was about nineteen ninety two, wasn't yeah. it? Mm. Um, recently came out on Big Finish, and 
I, it's just my first ever Doctor Who Big Finish review, actually. I've reviewed loads <laughs> okay. of Big Finish, but it's all right. been other things. <laughs> I don't know why. I've always steered clear of the Doctor Who, because I've always been a bit wary of it. And I think, actually, listening to Nightshade kind of proved to me, in a way, that uh, joining something after it's been going for a while is a good reason to be wary of it, because I have to say I did find the first 20 minutes a bit of a struggle. Right. Probably through no fault of the stories, but just because... The other big finish things I've reviewed, I've basically listened to from the start. Whereas with their Doctor Who, they obviously already have a sort of format. Style, yeah. yeah. A style. And obviously it took me a little while to get on board with that. Now the story itself, and um, and in my review, this is what brought up. I think there are issues with the story that you probably get away with in a novel but that the audio kind of brings to the fore. So although it's got some interesting premises and it deals with most of them mostly satisfactorily and it foreshadows how it's going to end and builds to it, so the ending's not a disappointment, it does kind of set you on the wrong foot right from the off. And it's one of those cases where... And again, this comes back to what I always say about if you, when you write a story, all your various subplots and subtexts need to add up. And it kind of doesn't do that. Mm. So I think that by the end, by the time you get to the end of the story, and there's one point in particular, as you're coming towards the end of the story, where you're thinking, well, actually, you set this out to be a story about X, when really it's a story about Y. But the way the X storyline ends is really perfunctory and really basically comes out of nowhere and leads to nothing. Mm. And for me, that was an issue in fully enjoying the story. Okay. But is there an argument for saying that sometimes novels or long, long format stories are <clears throat> working on a straight line? They're a journey. Whereas something like a radio play or a TV series has a shape to it. Well, I think it's actually the other way around. Okay. I think with an audio or a TV, you kind of have to straighten out the narrative because of the time and the fact, and this is the other thing I was going to bring up, that you don't get the internal monologues that you get in a novel. Mm. On a novel, you can go off at tangents according to people's thought processes yeah. that you can't on audio or TV. And I think this is probably what the issue is in Nightshade because I think the A plot that turns out to be irrelevant probably gets so much space devoted to it in the novel mm. that the balance isn't lost and you don't realise. Because mm. sometimes you can read a novel and get to the end of it and not realise what the novel's really been about. Yeah. Because so much of the internal monologues that you're reading are about something else that it kind of deceives you into reading the novel in a different way, mm. which is something you can't do on audio or on TV. So I think by the time you get to this point in the novel where this thing happens, I'm not going to say what it is because I'm not going to spoil it, because a lot of people listening to this podcast probably will listen to it, so I don't want to spoil it. But I do think you get to this point in the story and from that perspective, it's a big issue. And it's obviously a big issue that was there in the first place in the novel. Because although they've obviously cut it down tremendously to get mm, it into two mm, hours, mm. it's obviously still the same trajectory as the story took in the novel. Are they going to continue to do these adaptations? Yeah, I think they've so. Done, Several, they haven't, haven't done they? human nature yet. But 
I don't think they'll do human now. No. But they've done Love and War, and they've done Damaged Goods. They've done quite a few now. Okay. They've done also some of the past Doctor or the Missing Adventures. I wonder if they're focusing on the people who have written for the series then. So Mark Gatiss, Paul Cornell, Russell T. Davis, where it's got Gareth Roberts. They've done Well Mannered yeah. War in English Way of Death. I'd like to see Transit. It could be quite interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a good novel. It could be, actually, yeah. that they're concentrating on the people who've written for the TV. Yeah. That would make sense. Have yeah. you read Nightshade before? Before that? No, but what I did was, before I listened to it, I dug my copy out and I sort of skimmed through it mm. so that I could sort of pick up the... I quite enjoyed it. I remember yeah, quite enjoying it. It was sort of quite I, traditional story when I read it. I had been planning to read it, mm. but when it came up for review, there just wasn't time to read it before the mm. review copy came out. Yes. And with Big Finish, you don't tend to get review copies before release. Right. So it's a case of download it, listen to it, write the review, or else your review's coming out weeks after the audio do. Mm. So there just wasn't time. So literally, I just had to go into the book, get a get a feel for the tenor of the book, mm-hmm. and kind of make my estimation off that. Mm. But I mean, I, I went through the book looking for particular points and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And they've been, you know, relatively faithful, as faithful as you could possibly be, turning a 300-page book into a 120-minute yeah. audio play. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, is it a Pertwee story? Uh, no, Seventh Doctor is New Adventure yeah. as opposed to Missing Adventure. Oh, so okay. Right. Seventh Doctor and Ace. There's some really interesting things happen in it. And it's, uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. It's the one where it has Professor X. Is that right? It has a sort of a, a, yeah. a kind of a parody version of Doctor Who on the television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of extension of remember that moment in remembrance of the Daleks. Mm. Yeah. Basically, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, I'd recommend it, but I'd recommend it with that reservation that you get to the end of it and one particular aspect of it is unsatisfying. But the main thrust of the plot is dealt with in a very satisfying way. Mm-hmm. So it swings and roundabouts, really. Right, let's talk about season eight, shall we? <laughs> no, no. Now we're an hour in. <laughs> no, I'm going to do the three film reviews first so that we, okay. can, so that we can take season, up, season eight up to the end of the podcast. Okay. Three reviews, I'm going to do them really quickly. Right. First one is Ratta. Do you know what a ratter is? It's somebody who gets into your computer systems and uses them to spy on you. Okay. okay. So there's a girl, moves to New York, lives in an apartment on her own. Um, Somebody's got into her computer systems and he's using the cameras on her phone and her laptop to spy on her. It's all done from the perspective of the cameras, like a found footage thing, although obviously it's not quite found footage. Um, But... It's one of those unfortunate examples where the director of the film has kind of tried to go for verisimilitude over drama. Okay. So instead of introducing you to the people in her lives and making them suspects, that never really happens. Mm. And because it's all through the footage that the guy at the other end is watching of her, you also never really get much sense of any of the people in it, Mm. including the girl herself, to be honest. Mm. So you get to the end of the film not caring very much about anybody, not following any plot, because there's no plot as such to speak of. It's basically an hour and 15 minutes of just watching this girl do one thing after another, and then one scene at the end where it all happens. Mm. So although it's very well made, it's just a bit of a failure, really. Okay. 
Second film is I Want to Hold Your Hand, which came out in the 1970s. It's Bob Zemeckis' directorial debut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Interesting story about how it got made. Steven Spielberg, who knew Bob Zemeckis and had already had a couple of big successes, the company that bankrolled it, which I think was Universal, said to Steven Spielberg, we want you to be executive producer on this. So it's his very first executive producer credit. Mm-hmm. But on the basis that, if they didn't like the rushes from what Bob Zemeckis was doing, they'd sack Zemeckis and get Spielberg to step in. Right. So he had to agree to step in. But of course, Bob Zemeckis, he went on to do Back to the Future and everything. Mm-hmm. He made a big success of it, so Spielberg never had to step in. It's essentially the story of four girls in 1964 who live in New Jersey, who want to go into New York because the Beatles are going to appear on... Oh, the name of the TV show escapes me. Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan. Mm. It's their first appearance on Ed Sullivan. Four girls. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, four girls want to go to New York to um, break into the hotel and meet the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a fairly madcap comedy. Okay. But it is really well done, really good natured, tremendous fun. And it's the first time on DVD in the UK, oh, amazingly. Wow. Okay. <laughs> in spite of the fact that, you know, it's been around for donkey's years, I'd highly recommend it to. Just think, about anybody. I think Zemeckis might have a new film out, which might explain it. Oh, could be. Vague, it's vague another movie. one of those films that's been reissued by this company. It's just oh, okay. A certain right. amount of the, they seem to be coincidentally reissued. Yeah, yeah. Because they're all coming out at the same time, more or less. Okay. So, I don't know whether this is just coincidence or whether they are timing this deliberately. Yeah. Maybe they are. Highly recommended, even if you don't like the Beatles. And if you do like the Beatles, highly, highly, highly recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third film is Craze, which is a 1974, not really a horror film, sort of a horror film from Freddie Francis, right. who got two Oscars for cinematography on proper films, but who was actually better known for doing a bunch of Hammer and Amicus films. Okay. And this is Jack Palance plays a antiques dealer who worships the idol of an African god in his cellar. As you do. And he's making... Pretty innocuous <laughs> sacrifices to it. Mm. Bloodletting, but not killing people. Oh, Just... okay, that's fair enough. <clears throat> so, you know, he has a coven of witches who meet down in the cellar, and one of them will, like, cut themselves. Mm. Oh, okay. And so they let a little blood, and the sacrifice is made, and then everybody goes home safe and sound. We've all done it, haven't we, Simon? With your <laughs> anti-Australian coven that you... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's yeah. Simon's anti-Australian coven, Matt. I think I'm you like, might at least be a part of it, if I'm not the head of it. trying to deflect attention from home. Mm. Anyway, the film opens <laughs> with somebody who used to be in the coven but got chucked out, coming to have a go at him, and there's an accident, and she ends up dead. And the next day... Um, Jack Palance's character gets a letter. He's about to go bankrupt, essentially. And all of a sudden discovers in one of the antiques in his shop a huge amount of gold coins, which solve all his financial problems. Puts two and two together and decides that making proper blood sacrifices to Chuku, this African god, is the way to go. So it's basically the police connect him with a couple of cases and it's whether or not they'll be able to get him or whether he'll escape because he's assuming the African gods protecting him and there's a bit of an Agatha Christie sort of bit in the middle okay which I won't spoil by going into uh but it's very early 1970s and it's very sort of down market Brit 1970s Mm. it's fantastic okay (laughs) yeah yeah and I mean lots of 
pretty famous people in really small parts. And um, the police officers are played by, um, oh, name of the main one escapes me, very famous actor, Trevor Howard. Right. And the detective who actually gets on his case is played by Michael Jaston. Hey. The Veil Yard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're a Doctor Who fan, that's your way in. It's fantastic. <laughs> Highly <laughs> recommended. Let's talk about season eight, shall we? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, does anybody else want to do a quick? <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's, no, no, no. let's, let's, let's get on with let's it. Let's start the podcast. <laughs> let's mm. get this ball rolling. <laughs> yes, yeah, over an hour into the podcast, let's get started. It's not like we've not done it before. No, nope. no. Nope. On season eight, Miles Northcott says overall this was a very solid season. It cemented Pertwee's popularity, and by introducing the Master and Joe, it defined the rest of the Third Doctor's tenure. At least three of the stories are regarded as classics for at least one reason, and as JR has pointed out before, this is probably the start of Doctor Who as we best recognise it, the foundations on which an empire was built. David Kitchen says, Death in Heaven is terrible. (laughs) And... Not the best of Pertwee's seasons, but still a lot of very watchable stories. My top four could very easily all change slots depending on my Mm. mood. Yeah. This period was staple Doctor Who for us in Australia in the 1980s with regular repeats and very much the Doctor Who I grew up on. Steve Herr says, This is an interesting season for me as although I am a nearly 50-year-old obsessive fan, I do not think I have watched two of the stories all the way through. I must try again to put that right soon. Good God. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, wow, that's probably quite true for a lot of fans. Yes, the way Doctor yes, Who's come out, yes, with it not coming out in season box sets, you kind of tend to pick it, no, pick no, it up piecemeal, no, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Finally, Dylan Reese says, my least favourite era of Doctor Who. Oh. I'm sure the nostalgia does it for all you kids of the 70s, but nobody will convince me that this is better than anything JMT made. Okay, well, this will be an interesting test, because I don't know how old Dylan Reese is, but I'm a child of the 80s. Mm. And I can't remember watching anything before City of Death. So it's not going to be nostalgia for me. So let's see. Well, okay, but this is the point at which we give a sort of overall view of season eight before Mm -hmm. we go into the order the stories came in. And as soon as you've brought it up, Matt, season eight, your thoughts on it? Um, So I, I agree with you that it was it was a sort of cementing of a format. Mm. After after season seven, which was a bit more, a bit more kind of hybridised, Troughton and trying a different thing and Derek Sherwin's and abortive attempt. Before we forget though, season six was also a very odd season. Yeah, yeah, and I, and actually I really liked season seven, and so my 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 way of judging it is, I sometimes I sometimes start watching Doctor Who at particular points. So I've started at uh, Planet of the Spiders. And then I watch it through and I find that maybe Planet of Evil, I lose interest and stop. With Pertwee, I start watching it Spearhead from Space. And I can pretty much watch all the way through season eight. And I think that's that's probably its best its best sort of commendation, is that, that it maintains my interest and I can watch them one after the other. Some more than others. There are a few a few load patches. <laughs> but... But and I yeah and and we'll get to those and the guy I, mean, I can't remember who said that there were four four David could, Kitchen yeah, yeah David Kitchen I think is right that there are some some really strong stories and even the weaker stories I think have have commendable elements to them 
So I'm generally positive. Well, the voting turned out fairly interesting. We'll get to that in a minute. Simon, season eight. I, hmm, it's very difficult in as much as I kind of relate it to the old John Pertwee annuals. Oh, wow. Okay. It seems very kind of technicolour and very comic mm. strippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this this particular season, in contrast to the previous one, very surfacy. Mm. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that in a I what you see is what two you of get. The, two of the stories are particularly technicolour and comic strip. Mm. I think, mm. and they really stand out. And we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, it it, it it just kind of flows. I think. Yeah. Um, not in a particularly outstanding way. I've got one or two, you know, a couple of the stories there I think are outstanding, but but from a uh, just from a great Doctor Who, very easily watchable kind of way, really. I mean, I think it's the first time in ages it's actually felt like they've got a handle on the production. Yeah, it's and kind it of the like Roger, it's, it's the Roger Moore of Doctor Who. Yeah, but also, but also in the previous two seasons they've been making them. As in this kind of disaster management yeah. sense, mm. and this is the first time that Barry Letts has actually said we'll have a a big bang a opener, yeah. a yeah. big conclusion. Mm. Everything's worked, everything's done what he's expected. It doesn't sound, from what I can remember, like there were any massive stories that fell through mm. at the last mm. minute. It's just a careful, controlled production, yeah. and that makes it good, solid, but not not exceptionally exciting no there's yeah. no there's no kind of pyramids of mars or there's no kind of genesis of the daleks in it there's no but maverick stories no but that's it this is the satisfaction of, of barry letts's time for me is mm. it's solid you know what you're going to get and it's safe and, and it's it actually pretty much always good. delivers yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah he is a genius he is a brilliant he's probably one of the best producers the series has had and this is, of course, a... where he was able to put his stamp on it because he came in midway through season seven and the stories in season seven were already, even though he had an influence on how they would end up on the screen, they were, the stories were already locked in. This is where he actually gets to, for the first time, make the Doctor Who that he wants to make. Mm-hmm. So he's saying now it's stall here in some yeah. ways. So whatever else happens in the Doctor Who afterwards, this is its... Uh, and you know... The expression difficult second album, mm-hmm. where you've got to try and repeat the elements of your first album and not make it sound like you're just going over the old ground. And kind of with Barry Letts, you do get a bit of that from season nine onwards. Mm. But here, this is all the elements in their most original and exciting mm. yeah. Yeah. form. Yeah. And this is also the one where there's a, there's a technical quantum leap as well. They actually start... This is the start of Barry Letts really pushing the technology, mm. as we'll come to. Not entirely successfully to start with, but, you know, you applaud his innovation whilst not exactly embracing <laughs> yeah. his execution. Yeah, maybe. It's like you get a certain band line-up, isn't it, and it suddenly mm. everything falls into place. Yeah. yeah. Right, there's two elephants in the room here, so we might as well bring them up now. Okay. Um, oh, but before we do, okay. in case I forget to mention it at the end... I should say that earlier this week, but will have gone out a couple of weeks before this, I appeared on the New Zealand podcast, Zeus Pod. Right. And the format of that particular episode was that they give you two seasons to talk about and you decide which one is better. And I asked them not to tell me which two seasons it was before we went on because I <laughs> wanted the surprise. And one of them, season eight. 
So if anybody gets to the end of this podcast and wants me to hear to hear me talk for another half an hour about season eight or Zeus Pod. Or what it's saying is if you want to know what JR thinks about season eight, then listen to the Zeus podcast. And JR is going to be quiet for the rest of this podcast because he doesn't need to talk. So Not it's just going to be Simon happen. and I talking about <laughs> Not so going to happen. We went through them at a rate of knots on the Zeus pod. Well, we're going to have to do it this time. Otherwise, we'll still be doing this podcast next week. <laughs> it's a bank holiday, I suppose. We can, That's just carry, plan, we can carry on until Monday now. <laughs> Why not? Um, the two elephants in the room. I'll save okay. the big one for a second. The first one is the formation of the unit family mm. happens here. Yeah. Obviously, that's down to Barry Letts. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I mean, it didn't go according quite to the plan he had because he brought in Mike Yates. Originally, the idea was that he was going to be a boyfriend for Joe Grant. That yeah. never happened. But and he ended up a love interest for Benton. In <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But basically, that's what happens here the formation yeah. of the unit mm-hmm. family. And you do get something of a character arc for Joe Grant as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on. I liked, I liked, well, I liked the way Unit was presented in season seven, um, with a, a varying sort of cast with the Brigadier at the centre. Um, but I can see why they've, they've done it this way. And it does, it does by the, by the time the series, the season ends, you certainly feel like, you don't feel like they're a big military unit necessarily. No, no, you no. feel like they're a sort of a, a small team of investigators. And but you that feel, kind of works for me. I mean, I don't yeah. know that. And you feel a certain amount of affinity with all of the characters mm. and you care yeah. about them yeah. by the end of the season. Yeah, and actually, to be fair, you probably pretty much do from the start because yeah. they come in fully formed. Yeah. And, you know, I I think it's this, not a stroke of genius, but I think it was by far the best decision on Barry yeah. Letts' behalf. Mm. And, by if, the, and by the end of the, the season, it, they've clearly bonded to the point where the next season... Is is taking advantage of that, so you get really yeah. nice character yeah. moments. I'm thinking in Day of the Daleks, which we're not going to talk about, but in Day of the Daleks, there's some really nice character moments between the between uh, Benton and Yates and mm. Brigadier and Yates, and that all comes from how this series it came how from. How they knitted together. This this season is a very happy season for the production, a very comfortable season. Mm-hmm. Tom, uh, not Tom Baker. John Pertwee is is settled in the role. He's comfortable. He's the centre of the production. And as I've and always all, said, it just works. As I've always said, if you make it a comfortable bottom line, mm-hmm. then that gives you a bit of license to go further into the sort of horror and further into the sort of unusual aspects yeah. of the storytelling. Yeah. Because your audience, instead of turning off, and when I say turning off, I mean mentally turning off as opposed to yeah. physically turning off. They're going to go with you because mm. they're interested and in the characters. There's two sides of it, isn't there? So in here, you have a, a team of, of actors and creatives who are very comfortable together, and that creates something nice. It creates a nice atmosphere. On the other hand, if the actors don't get along, that can create something good, like um, Horror of Bang Rock, for instance, mm. is, is a lead actor who hates being where he <laughs> is and doesn't get on with his co-star. And, and that's really kind of altering... The, the dynamic of the ex- the episode. It's where you get actors that are just bored. That's, yeah. the, that's the main problem. Mm. Sorry, Simon. Unit no, no. family. Yeah, no, it's 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 just great. I think you've made all the all the valid points. Which is, they just do seem very comfortable very quickly, mm. and it just gels. And suddenly you've got this team. You've um, and I, I don't think anyone probably let slip to John Pertwee at the time, but 
you know, all of a sudden he wasn't necessarily the most important in the room, person in the room. He was part, he was one cog in the machine. Well, this is why I quite like, so this is what I like about the John Pertwee doctor. Mm. And this might not be something that John Pertwee noticed about the doctor <laughs> is he is written as a pompous mm. character, which everybody or quite a few often people hate. But the whole point about that is you can puncture it. So there are, yeah. there are no, moments. Joe Grant's whole and, role is to, yeah. is yeah. to, to bring it in after, you know, yeah. and it doesn't always, it it doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. And sometimes <laughs> it becomes insufferable. But particularly in parts of this season, those moments where it's punctured mm. are incredible. I mean, they're really, really mm. very funny. And John Pertwee performs that well because I suspect it's John Pertwee's pomposity that's being punctured as much as the Third mm. Doctor's. Mm. And I think the formation of the Unit family allows for the creation of a different kind of Doctor Who mm. that's viable as a format. Mm. I think if you'd have tried to carry on with season seven where it's just the Brigadier and any old Tom, Dick or Harrow they get in for an episode, yeah. it quickly becomes unviable. Yes, although ironically that's a format that they almost immediately <clears throat> try to get out of. So they bring in the unit family and then they try to spend the rest of the time oh, yeah, getting yeah. the Doctor off the earth. So <clears throat> by the time you get to some of these stories... They're already sidelining uh, as uh, if possible. That's Terence Dix and Barry yeah. Let saying, "Why did you lumber us with this yeah, format?" Yeah, but I think but actually, but I think it's quite nice that there's a tension there. Yeah. That, you know, this is character yeah. who just wants to get away from the place. Yeah. And this, but what I'm saying is, by bringing in the unit family, what mm. they've done is they've made it a format that works. Yes. Yeah. And this season in particular balances the desire of the Doctor to get away and the sidelining of the unit family with the ones where the unit family is central to. Mm. Well. It's interesting, isn't it? You relate that to the crowded TARDIS, the, the Davison era. Mm. That's because they don't get along. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, they've all got... Well, that's because that's they're written in such a dead a dead way. They're having arguments about something that has nothing to do with mm. with the story. They're written as issues rather than characters, really, in the 80s, yeah. and that's the problem. Yeah. <clears throat> the other elephant in the room is the master. Now, this is something that people who've already heard the Zeus pod will have already heard me say, but I'm going to say it again here anyway to get your opinion on it. On the one hand, would people who don't read the Radio Times have realised back in 1971 that the Master was going to be in every story? Because let's face it, there's nobody at the start of the season turning up on the television, and out of 8 million viewers... Only a tiny fraction of those are going to actually be reading about what's coming up in Doctor Who. Mm. And the other thing is, <laughs> we look back on it now and we look at season eight and say, oh God, the master turns up every week. Because we've all seen also Frontier in Space and yeah. the Sea Devils and the Time Monster. Yeah. And we've also seen the Keeper of Trakan and Legopolis and Castrovalva. And we're very used to the master as a character. Mm. But, and it never struck me before I was on the Zeus pod, but when we were talking about it there, it suddenly struck me. An audience in 1971 who've never seen the Master before, when the Master turns up at the start of Claws of Axos mm. or halfway through Colony in Space, mm. they're probably actually thinking, oh good, the character I really like who was mm. in the last story is mm. going to be in this one too. Yeah, And so for them, actually, when the Master turns up, it's a bonus, not mm. something to be bored by. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, I'm, not, oh, sorry, I'm trying to remember, is there a practical reason why he does... Is it the fact that he's just stuck around... He's 
the Doctor's stuck there, so he thinks I'm going to stick myself here as well. No, he steals at the end of Terror of the Autons. He steals the bit out of his TARDIS yeah. that enables him to right, escape. Yeah. So there's a so very there's always, valid reason. There's so. always a certain certain reason, mm, but also yeah. from a from a sort of a stepping back perspective, it also gives him uh, an arc storyline as mm, well. Mm. So he gets arrested by the end of it. So he does have a story. But you're you're right. It would be a surprise. <laughs> it would be. I think by the time the the demons comes along. It's yeah, probably less of a surprise. Maybe they're, they're not quite so surprised to find that the the masters in it. Um, but still, they're probably but, enjoying when yeah, he turns yeah. up. Yeah, and um, and he's a great character. So yeah, good. But also, he's a great balance for the unit family because mm-hmm. we've just said how forming the unit family gives the format of viability when you're on Earth. Yeah. But by the same token, you form the unit family and you give them a different adventure every week. And there's not the kind of consistency that you get here by having the same villain every week. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's a balance of both sides of that production format regime thing that Barrelets is bringing in. He's sort of deliberately given himself all the glue yeah. to cement well, he's doing this a, into place. He's doing a very modern thing, which is um, creating a drama with with a large cast, with a large group of cast and that takes yeah. the pressure off John Pertwee and the rest of the cast and also it gives more chance for character relationships so you're not just getting Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines having a character moment you're getting diff- lots of different character moments from and mm. Delgado is a crucial part of that and, yeah and including with the villain yeah absolutely yeah, exactly. yeah, there's when there's he's solidity to the whole thing yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. should we get into some stories then okay. right here we go the story that came in last and it will come as no surprise to anybody Miles Northcott says tremendous book would have made a good two-parter on TV stretching it to six parts made it possibly the most tedious story to watch although I still adore it it just doesn't stack up too well when compared to the rest of Doctor Who Jim Hall says there's not a huge amount between my top four stories of 71, but there's a yawning gap between them and this. I'd love to have a redemptive reading, but the oatmeal-coloured farmers and their muddy hole of a planet leave me desperate for some appalling CSO to liven up proceedings. When the strange event taking place on top of Captain Dent's head is the only visual flair on offer, you're in trouble. Rob Irwin says... (laughs) A story I've always felt a bit meh about without really having strong reasons why. Are the six episodes too much? David Kitchen says this story looks very drab but has a lot of wonderful characters and ideas within it. I really encourage fans to give this one another look. It also contains the moment the Doctor turns down the Master's offer to share the universe, marking the turning point after which the Master no longer wants to needle the Doctor but wants to destroy him. Steve Hur says plodding is this story's word. Never managed to get past episode three, I think. I will make it my mission to watch it all in this gap year. <laughs> Dylan Reese says, my favourite of the bunch, mainly due to the book being a tighter, <laughs> grittier affair. But despite some poor production values, this is still a great story. I wish the Pertwee era had been more like this all round. Oh, OK. And Brendan Day, and apologies to Brendan Day for calling him Brendan Jones on a previous podcast. I have written it down correctly this time. So what does Barry Day say? He says, One of my favourite Target books, but it does feel stretched thin over six episodes. Four would have made this a much more interesting story. And for anyone who hasn't guessed, it's Colony in Space. And all I'll say to lead this off is, the production of it might be a bit drab, 
but it is still Malcolm Hulk with all the ideas and character beats and you know deceptions and everything else that you associate with Malcolm Hulk. Mm. I think it's actually a really good story, and I think the book is proof of that. And I think the only issue with the television is that it all looks a bit grey. I know. I I agree. I I think it's <clears throat> I think it's the appearance that I watched this the first time I watched this. I was expecting it was a long time ago, but I was expecting to get bored with it because I'd heard that it's quite yeah. a boring story. And I watched all six episodes one after the other without getting bored. And I kind of got it. It's a kind of an immersive environment. So yeah, yeah. It's, it looks very, very drab. But actually, it's consistent. It's consistently drab. <laughs> so, and it all feels like it works. And it, it has that kind of 1970s survivalist yes. uh, kind of good life survivor's mentality that's really satisfying at the time. They've, Hulk's come up with this with this world and he's put these colonists on the world and they're, they're what Russell T. Davis talks about. They should be pioneers, they should be at the edge. And this is about as close as... I mean, I think the appearance goes against it, but if you use your imagination, these are pioneers trying desperately to scrabble their existence and out of the earth. Mm. Struggling. And and by the time the master arrives, it's just enough to lift the story back up mm. and give it a bit more, give it a oh, bit more momentum. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's brilliantly characterised. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's unfortunately it's been placed with all these very colourful stories, yeah. technical yeah, yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, it, it it it's contrasted, but yeah, it's contrasted in a way that gives the impression that it's. A drab story, but I think the drabness serves the story. Oh, absolutely, it needs yeah. To be. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it's just not mm. served by its. It's very one well of those slicing. instances, really, where it sticks out. Yeah, and it needs to stick out, and it should stick out because it's the only one set on an alien planet mm. against four stories set on Earth. Mm. But rather than sticking out, doing it a service, sticking out does it a disservice in this instance. I'm so sure it would have done, but it would have done better in season seven. Though. Um, you know, actually, interesting that because I think it's a really good story and it might have fit with some of the themes yeah, of season it, seven. It feels better. like an off world season seven story. Mm. You're right. Mm. I don't, I'm not sure if Malcolm Hulk ever quite got the hang of cliffhangers because in here, the first two cliffhangers are the doctor being threatened by a big robot. Where, and likewise, in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the first Every two cliffhangers yeah. are the doctor being threatened by a giant. He's, he seems he seems to be less interested in yeah. in drama and projecting the drama and more interested in the ideas and getting a, a consistent world yeah. Yeah, and that is there's points. a satisfaction with that there's a sort of a mm. a slightly smarter satisfaction with that whereas other stories in the season are slightly more interested in moving from set piece to set piece mm. as rapidly as possible which is the, I think the Robert Holmes technique mm. and I think what sort of works for this story mostly but perhaps isn't subtle enough here I think in maybe in Invasion of the Dinosaurs it's done a lot more subtly but I kind of like the politics of this story and mm. it's really obvious politics yeah. but that doesn't mean to say you can't like it I like yeah. it Yeah, <clears throat> they're slightly flawed the, yeah, uh, the, uh, then... the, the native species are still <clears throat> kind of treated. Are, yeah. are other bits in the story that aren't fully developed so you'd imagine somebody who came up with the Silurians would would do a little bit better with the the. Uh, but then he wrote the Sea Devils the next year, yes. so yeah. he's not yeah. he's not 
perfect in no, that regard. No. But, but the politics between the settlers and the miners, yeah, yeah, I think is um, an absolute paradigm example of what the John Pertwee stories best achieved yeah, really yeah that's one of the most memorable things of the I'm going by memory here but i seem to remember getting kind of getting the impression that poe was bloody loving it being what? in the middle of all this meaty stuff yeah, yeah. intelligent yeah. stuff yeah it gives him his moments of charm yes. in abundance in this particular <laughs> one and also action so a lot of and i'm going by memory in fact we're all going by memory really but yeah, yeah. um there, there's there's probably quite a few quite a few pertwee fight sequences i'd imagine Mm. In this one, are they not in the in the quarry? I think they're. Or is there? A, is this the one where he avoids a large polystyrene boulder rolling down the quarry wall? Oh, I, really, I really, it haven't, seen it it. I really haven't seen this in about fifteen years. So, <laughs> yeah. But I think okay. In conclusion, on Colony in Space, yeah. so we can whip through these okay. a bit. Yeah, I think it's actually a lot better than yeah. its reputation would suggest, and a lot better than yeah. Where it ends up in this spell, yeah, I think I wouldn't have put it at the bottom. <laughs> target, but it was Doomsday Weapon, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah, and that's and that's the one that started weirdly, didn't it? It started with a. It's a bit like in, in an exciting adventure with the Daleks. It had a. Kind oh, it of starts a, off with an, an explanation. Of, yeah, yeah, which is a bit strange. But I suppose because it was an early one, then I think yeah, it might well have been the. No, it certainly wouldn't have been the first one of the unit stories out because they'd done Auton Invasion. Yes, it was the first very Jay early. Grant, first Jay yeah. Grant. <laughs> Yeah, that's yes. perhaps it. Yeah, because the Terror of the Autons novel came after, I believe. Um, okay, next one up. Okay. Um, Miles Northgate says, <laughs> "Go on, R U R U R R U R." That is all. Okay. Yeah. Jim Hall says, "For me, the Pertwiest Pertwee. All the ingredients you want and expect from the Third Doctor's era. Unit, the Master, obstructive bureaucrat, nosy gentleman of the road coming a cropper, and surely the most psychedelic aliens in Doctor Who. Inventive design and use of effects ensure the axons, or is it just the axos entity singular, still pack a visual wallet, despite their resemblance to a Tomorrow's World Top Gear era William Woolard. <laughs> no idea what that <laughs> reference is. I remember William Woolard. Yeah, this is a this is a generational thing. It is. It is. I'm yeah. just one of the presenters on Tomorrow's World. Okay. Okay. Oh I'm god, long, yeah. Long curly hair. Oh, I'm, mm. I'm too young for that, unfortunately. Oh, get away! You only pretend to be younger than us. <laughs> no, no, I really am younger than you. <laughs> Somebody that tall has obviously been growing for longer than either Simon so, or yeah. I have. Yes. Yeah. That's logic. You can't argue with it. Rob Irwin says, not my favourite story, as you can see from where I've ranked it, but the four-episode structure feels nice and tight, and that's appreciated when rewatching the Pertwee <laughs> era. Ah, a Pertwee four-parter. Bliss. Is, is <laughs> I'm impressed it's, that he can type with gorilla fingers. <laughs> I can't believe it. Well, do you know what? I might as well play up to it. <clears throat> I think you'd gotten away with it, actually. <laughs> and now you've just... I can't, I can't believe you went there. David Kitchen says, as much as I enjoy the Pertwee era, I find this a very hard story to watch. Unlike the other stories this season, the characters are very two-dimensional and the story rather dull. But at least the master gets some good lines. His sticky tape on the windows gag is wonderful. Steve Herr, spaghetti is the word for claws. I loved the Axon monsters. Okay. Uh, loved them so much they reused them in the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dylan Reese says the only time a Bristol Boys script fully worked. 
Nobody gets the ridiculous nature of Doctor Who like them. It's just a shame their further stories need so much more to make them work. But this, for the most part, is perfect. Now, when will Big Finish bring back Bill Filer? Cold day in hell. <laughs> and Brendan Day says, It's not that I don't enjoy this story. It has many plus points. Unit, well-realised aliens and spaceships. The Master, surprise not. BBC Three outside broadcast and the indescribable Pigbin Josh. It's just I prefer the other stories, and this one comes in last, but I would show this to a new classic viewer as a good example of the Pertwee era. I'm I'm with I'm with Brian Day on this one. I think that's Well that's this brings accurate. me to this, I'm not sure if you're aware, this was the first classic series D V D that came out after Doctor Who returned in two thousand and five. And oh. I was in the pub um I Drunk? think No. I was in the pub. I think on was the it, eve... was it the pub or was it some sort of CSO behind you, pretending <laughs> to be a pub? <laughs> yeah. I was in the pub with a friend, and I think Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who had been on for two, four, something like that, weeks by this mm. point, and the Claws of Axos DVD was just about due out, and we were expecting it. And he was, and he said, and this is Peter. I don't know if he listens to this, but if he does, I've just name checked it. Said, "Oh my God." He said, all those people who are suddenly loving Doctor Who <laughs> go into the shops yeah. and in the new releases rack, they'll see a Doctor Who DVD and they'll give it a try and it'll be this. And I said, no, Peter, you've got it wrong. Because actually, if you look at what Russell T. Davis does and what Claws of Axos does, it's probably the closest thing the classic series got to the new yeah. series rather than the furthest away. Yeah, I it is. I really dislike Claws of Axos. Once, once again, not. sharing our age, um, saying about the guy from Tomorrow's World. I remember watching this a couple of years ago, and my immediate reaction was, "Oh, it's the bloke out of Picture Box." <laughs> oh, I remember Picture Box. <laughs> remember Picture Box? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It might be a race memory, but it was certainly there somewhere. Claws of Axos is based around a really interesting concept that they actually do fairly good justice to, that the alien invaders. Instead of trying to take planet Earth by force, we'll try and take planet Earth by subterfuge. And it doesn't shy away from telling that story. You get quite a bit of that. No, I, yeah. And I I actually enjoy the caricatured nature of it. Yeah. David Kitchen thinks the characters are two-dimensional. Yeah. I don't think they're two-dimensional so much as they're sort of archetypes built on versions of real people yeah. the same way russell t davis does it russell t davis will take realistic characters like jackie and he will turn jackie into something of a caricature mm. but you can still see the real person underneath <coughs> i think if you look at the bureaucrats and characters like bill filer you can see the real people underneath i think i think i'm going to be i'm going to be contradicting myself because we get to the mind of evil where they they caricature the hell out of the Chinese in the mind of evil. Oh, God. But I think in Claws of Axos, I just find it distracting. I don't like the I don't like Bill Filer, the uh, the character. But I think I'm just I think on, for the Claws of Axos, it's a superficial thing. I just don't buy into that spaceship design. I don't like the sort of colourful, slightly sort of I, I can't 
get a grasp on the look of the thing. It's very, very trippy. This is what we can. <laughs> this is what yeah. we can do with technology in the wake of 1967. Yeah, I think. I think if I was the sort of person to drop acid before watching Doctor Who, then this would be the one for me. But I'm not. <laughs> I pe- I drink peppermint tea and water, and then drink what. Watch Doctor Who. That's Jeez. the. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this I'm is Doctor Who's 2001: Space Odyssey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. I think the Claws of Axos is tremendous fun, and it's got just enough substance that it doesn't feel like fun at the expense of the substance. I don't think it's a brilliant story, but I do think it's one of those Doctor Who stories that you can put on and enjoy the hell out of and not feel dirty afterwards. And I tell you what, growing up <coughs> in the well, being a, a Davidson fan uh, and the 20th anniversary um, Radio Times special and all those sort of things, if there were pictures of monsters, the Axons, mm. would just stand yeah. out something chronic, really iconic. Yeah. And actually the golden people as well. Mm. That's something, you know, you get something of the flavour of that with the robots and the robots of death but actually the golden people in the claws of Axos are quite they're almost unique and Mm. they're quite I don't know what the word is not just unique but there's something really intrinsically interesting about the idea of putting that into a story I think yeah I don't I didn't think the execution worked for me a sort of gold leotard with bulges and they, they had the very sort of portentous way of Talking. Presenting themselves, yeah. yeah. I preferred the the crinoid axon, but then you didn't get. Then you relied on the master being the the sort of voice yeah. of the villain. I didn't. So, again, as with all of these stories, this one would have been at the bottom of the list. I still think it's stronger than you know. It's not. It's not in my bottom fifty Doctor Who stories of all time. Mm-hmm. But I think when I do do my long getting through, watching through Doctor Who, Claws of Axos I find to be a bit of a drag. Whereas, oddly, Colony in Space I don't, which mm. might mm. make me perverse. Actually, talking of the Master, <laughs> this is the only story in the series where he literally has nothing to do in the story. <laughs> well, you do see, you see his, the, the first introduction of him is in the spaceship tied up, I seem to remember. Yeah. And he looks a bit bored, and I can't help thinking, Roger Delgado looks a bit bored to be in this Dayglow spaceship with nothing to do. Mm. just being tied up but then again take yourself back to 1971 and imagine that as being the start of the story yes and that wouldn't be oh roger delgado looks bored Mm. that would be what's going on with the master yeah my impression was Mm. what he obviously wants to be there yeah yeah it's just the way i saw it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it's one that time's not been kind to but i think but just actually i just talked about craze just now and this is the same as craze Mm -hmm. it is so of its time and if you embrace the period Mm. i think claws of axos and technically it's it's inventive i mean all of all of the shots in the spaceship even though i hate them they are really unique and inventive and they weren't done since and they weren't done before no there's nothing else in doctor who like it's also suddenly realizing you're making something in color as well it's Mm. using color which Mm, is yeah very true which is you know which i think the story that comes third suffers from a bit what's the story that that will be very pertinent when we talk about it okay so there's an irony in that 
so much work went into colorizing this story and it was the last one that got colorized and all that work that Stuart Humphreys and Peter Crocker put into getting that first episode together where the chroma dots didn't exist and it's the story that least benefits from it out of this entire season really yeah uh, let's do that <laughs> it's quite ironic when we talk about color of the series well yeah and actually the double irony is that it turned out to be the most expensive story of the season, mm. partly because they lost all that film and had to go back and redo it. Right. But partly because of all the military hardware on display. But actually, to my mind, it looks one of the cheapest of the season. Okay. Yeah. Well, because I would have assumed that Mind of Evil was most expensive because of the. Uh... That's the story. Oh, is that what we were talking about? Yeah. I but I mean, we, I think s- we started talking about that. Then. Are we talk- Yes, that, that was my segue. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but most of Mind of Evil takes place just in the prison sets. Oh, yeah. Oh, That's what I mean. I thought you were still talking about Claws of Axos. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Mind of Evil in black and white was brilliant. <laughs> it was it was <laughs> grim, gritty, noirish. Really well done. Mind of Evil in colour is still all right, but, you know. How easy is it to turn the colour off on a telly these days? Um, very easy. Yeah. Isn't it still the same? Yeah, yeah turn down the saturation. Well, yeah. As far as I'm aware, most tellies have still got it. Yeah, and that so. and that and Ambassadors of Death mm. are the two stories that actually I look think better look black better and... in black and white. And the demons, we'll get to that. Oh, I've never tried the demons. Oh well, we'll oh. get to that. Ask your dog. You um, dog. <clears throat> dog. Yeah, they do see in black and white, don't they? Or is that is that an urban myth? I don't. I don't own a dog, and they can't talk. So yeah, that's two that's the, two that's fatal stumbling. errors. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming scientists have probably looked at their corneas and worked this out. I don't know. (laughs) Miles Northcott says, on the mind of evil, another great idea, and being the first return appearance of the Master, this was something of a surprise, which soon lost that particular element. I think this would have likely worked better as a four-parter to tighten it up a bit, but it was still an absolute delight to finally see it in colour when released on DVD. Jim Hall I'm not sure the Doctor Who goes Clockwork Orange was ever going to work, <laughs> though the late Adrienne <laughs> Corrie being assaulted by a cuddly dragon to the strains of Singing in the Rain would be interesting. Mm-hmm. However, the out-of-control Keller machine remains a great, frightening concept, and I still love the idea that Coquillian haunts the Doctor's nightmares. Rob Irwin says, Although I find these six episodes a little much, I don't mind the story. The cacophony of sound in some scenes is genuinely shocking and almost overwhelming. An interesting premise too, although it starts to get a little silly by the end. Steve Herr says, My word is overrated. One of the stories I've never watched to the end. Although it is so well loved, I'm sure the problem must be with me. Never been a James Bond lover though. Dylan Reese says, stuck between season 7 brilliance and season 8 silliness, nobody knows what this is, all we know is, it's okay. And Brendan Day says, Avengers like fun, with a great cast and location. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I think the execution of the camera machine is dreadful, and detracts from the ideas. I have to say I'm drawing a bit of a blank on this one. Mind of I evil. D- yeah. I didn't mind the, the Keller machine. I I thought, I mean, it was it was the sort of it was the sort of prop that yeah. the camera goes in and out to give it any sort of kinetic activity, <laughs> and it's yeah. clearly it's a bit like Arcturus in in um, Curse of Peladon. 
but without the sort of the, the goo. Mm. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't mind it. It was sort of monolithic um, and, and vaguely creepy. But I didn't see it as sort of a central a central piece. What struck me about... Well, it's, the, it's the initial premise that kicks yeah. the story off. And yes, then... but it's more... It is just a prop rather than the villain. Yeah, but so it's, it's throughout the whole episode and it solves yes. it at the end pretty much, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's an issue... Episode throughout the whole story, all six episodes. Yes. So it's definitely an issue. I um, think The Mind of Evil is one of those stories where I think if you'd have taken some of the elements out and concentrated a bit more on some yes. that it might have made. Because if you look at the way Malcolm Hulk does things, he'll come up with a really strong idea and the way he'll string it out is by stringing out new plots from that idea. So in the dinosaur invasion, halfway through, you suddenly get Sarah Jane on the spaceship, yeah. which is entirely consistent with the original premise of the story and in the silurians you suddenly get the silurians releasing the disease into london mm. which again is kind of consistent with what's been going on but it's a new plot element that just adds a couple of episodes in the middle mm. whereas the mind of evil i don't think it strikes that balance terribly well it's, it's got two different things going on all the way through it's, it's never quite balanced it's a series of action set pieces strung together <clears throat> so that's, I mean, it, it but strung together by two different things is yeah. kind of. I mean, I think it would work. It's quite similar. It's actually the most season seven of all the season oh, yeah, eight yeah, stories. Yeah. It could have fitted into to season seven for me. Um, and the season seven stories, as distinct for season eight stories, they're more of a kind of a serial type. So they're because they're much longer. In some ways, I think either Mind of Evil either needs to be shorter or actually another two episodes yeah, yeah. and turn it into two stories, a bit like Inferno and, and the Silurians. I think the funny thing is, the Mind of Evil, if it had been in Season 7, would have been the weakest story in Season 7. But yeah. because it's in Season 8, the people who like Season 7 think of it as the strongest story in Season 8. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of... So for me, it's kind of fills a funny gap there by yeah. being out of place... It's kind of done itself a service yes. rather than a yeah. disservice. Yeah. And the the action the action set pieces are very well done. I mean, it is really well directed. Yeah, yeah. It is really well directed. It's just... It's I think just the script has just got issues. It's just a bit identityless. Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't quite decide if it's the one <clears> with the brain-sucking thing or the one with the prison riot or the one with the, <coughs> the Chinese, dodgy Chinese... Or the it one just with suddenly the occurred to master. me. I don't think I've ever watched it. Ah, that might be why you're having problems talking about it. Absolutely, yeah. What did yeah. Bo- what Possibly did... the target book a long time what ago. What did Boris Day say about it again? Was it about... <laughs> Boris Day, is but, it but, now? I mean, that just goes it to show... Avengers never... like fun with a great cast and location. What is, a, what is Avengers like fun? Well, the thing about... Oh. Well, the thing with the Avengers is each one starts with a conceit. And the right. conceits tend to be extrapolated out of scientific plausibility but to a point where they become scientifically implausible and I, and oh avengers oh okay yeah that, that's the first time that's happened oh you've I've heard not... avengers and i went marvel rather oh, than peel and steed because obviously the extrapolation here is <laughs> the clockwork orange bit yeah no no i get it now yeah but i'm i'm quite humiliated now because i prided myself on hearing the avengers and immediately thinking of steed Mm. And now well, I just thought, well, 
Whereas Simon does it the other way around. You say Avengers to Simon, and he thinks comic strips. I become Americanized. I really need to. I really need to go and watch Avengers. I thought British Avengers straight away purely because I can't. Because of what it was. Because yeah. it because it made sense. Yes. Because that, that made sense. <laughs> no wonder I was confused by his comment. Because yeah, yeah. I hadn't talked about Although the bit oh, where sorry. Mike Yates turns up in a cape <laughs> <laughs> and calls himself Queen Man is a dead yes, giveaway. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so I don't feel so bad about gorillas. And it's got some great actors in it. Um with Michael Sheard. Yeah, uh, but also um, the chap who, oh, is it, uh, this is another one of those things where it's getting too late now for names to come into my head. The guy who plays the, the creep, inmate who the undergoes creep. the Keller process oh, okay. the yeah. Yeah. is a great actor and pretty well known. Yeah. Playing against type, right. by playing type, he normally plays the sort of hard-bitten type. Okay. Yeah. And here he's playing the hard-bitten one yeah. who's been turned into a pussycat. Yeah. And that's a really interesting and way the, to do it. And the creepy prisoner, the the actual sort of villainous prisoner, yeah, is yeah. really well done as well. The, yes, and that's another really famous actor whose yes. name escapes me. We should have brought a program guide along with us. People <laughs> know who we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's that's the thing about the mind of evil. There's some great ideas and some great actors and some great concepts and some great bits, but it just in spite of the fact that it's been colourised, it just feels a bit colourless mm. in the company it's well, keeping here. I think half the reason I've never watched it is because there's never been any inclination to do so. Mm, maybe, no one's ever yeah. said to me, oh, you must watch Mind of Evil. Well, you should watch Mind of Evil. Oh, okay. Because, you know, it's a Pertwee story. It's yes. still, I mean, you know, it's not like the Space Museum where you can watch <laughs> it, you have the crotons. <laughs> I like the crotons. I think maybe an issue with this story... I like story... Delphine Bannerman. Yeah. I think maybe an issue <laughs> with this now. story is because it's the second unit family story and they're not quite bedded in. And here they're being given something out of kilter with the rest of the season to do. Yeah. Maybe makes it... Not maybe makes them feel slightly uncomfortable. Maybe makes it feel a slightly uncomfortable match for them. And they also split the unit family up as well. Yeah. So one of the pleasures of the unit family is watching the different characters interact. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly Benton's given the role of of prison prison governor, temporary prisoner governor. Brigadier's masterminding it. Yates gets on a motorbike. Yeah. And, yeah. And has a nasty accident. And so it doesn't doesn't quite pan out. I remember the book being very good. So Benton being knocked out came across really well. I liked some of the Benton scenes. In this. this it's good. The master seems not so much smoking a big cigar in the back of a yeah, yeah, yeah. limousine driven by a... Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not There's entirely comfortable. <clears throat> no, there are some uncomfortable bits. And actually, the thing is, it's got all those weird dream sequences as well, mm. which you'd think would give it colour. But yeah. actually, again, just... None of it feels like it quite matches up. Do you no. know what I mean? Yeah. It's, all those dream sequences in a different story. It feels like somebody's trying to shoehorn two minutes of the claws of Axos in yeah. once an episode. And and the unfortunate image that's left left in your head is Pertwee's gurning as he's dreaming and being yeah. attacked by fire. Which is really funny, but uh... <laughs> some of the dreams are actually really interesting mm. in certain ways. Doesn't it start off with Pertwee dreaming about the master? When the master get or does the master dream about 
the Doctor getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the, the Doctor dreams about fire to start with, which is a nice callback to the, to Inferno. Simon hasn't seen this, so this is like no, no. You're, like, you're you're selling it to me. I um, have to say. And then he dreams about the, what the uh, the guy writing yeah. in said. He dreams about all of his greatest foes. So. I think I think the doctor has two or even three dreams yeah. about this. If yeah. I, yeah. Well he I gets attacked thinking. by this mind sucking thing that brings brings all of his terrors to his mm. to his mm. mind. The Keller machine lives on fear, so it causes people to feel fear and then eats it mm. basically. Yeah. Oh nice. So bizarrely the the Chinese diplomat sees a dragon, which is a little bit weird really? considering this, but yeah. Oh, I never. Yeah. It's unfortunate. <clears throat> Shall we... Uh, Miles Northcott <clears throat> says, The Autons were so clearly worthy of a second outing, and the biggest surprise was that we didn't see them again until Rose. Add in the debut of the best master of them all, as well as Joe and Mike Yates, allied to a good solid story, and this is a bona fide classic. Eerie scenes like the devil doll, the armchair, the policeman, and the terrifying daffodil... In what other series would those words make any sense at all? Lol. Just make this one of the best Pertwee stories behind only Inferno, in my opinion. Did Miles just lol? <clears throat> Miles lols pretty much half his life. <laughs> Jim Hall. We all have our prime example of a TV story failing to match the target novelization. This is mine. Still very enjoyable, but when reading Terence Dix's prose, I didn't imagine the Doctor's run-ins with bizarre circus folk, troll dolls, nothing-faced policemen and a giant space crab spider octopus <laughs> would be rendered with so much underwhelming CSO magic. <laughs> <clears throat> Rob Irwin says some of the most iconic imagery of the Pertwee era and the introduction of you-know-who. Yes, we do, Rob. Two people have already mentioned it. Four episodes is just the right length, too. It's not the greatest story in the world, but it's a very easy story to watch and re-watch. David Kitchen, a perfect introduction for the master, with some of Doctor Who's most memorable set-piece moments. Steve Herr, colourful, is the word that comes to mind when describing this story. It might have something to do with a ropey old VHS black-and-white copy I used to watch before the scales fell from my eyes when it was officially released. <laughs> Dylan Reese, God, this is dull. Apart from Delgado and a bit of nice imagery with the Auton masks, this does nothing for me. And Brendan Day says making the everyday deadly while upsetting Mary Mrs. Whitehouse. What's not to love? Mm. <clears throat> and so, okay, put my colours on the table. Is that the expression? No, it's not. I think you'll, you'll, I'll nail, you'll my nail your colours to, to the mask. And put your. No. <laughs> I prefer Doctor Who when it's being fun. Terror of the Autons is one of the primest of prime examples of that. I absolutely adore this story. Okay. So before we ask Simon what he thinks of it... <laughs> you just... Yeah, go on. Matt, what do you think of Terror I, of the Autons? I don't like it as much as you do, JR. Um, I I think it is it is fun, and I think it's it's certainly a good one in this season. I think it's a series of set pieces. Um, I don't think it's as consistent as Spearhead from Space. And I think a lot of the set pieces work. Some of the set pieces don't work. But either the way they're executed or because they're just one step too far or they've just gone on. 
I think when set pieces start making it start being apparent as set pieces, then then I start losing interest. I think it has to have some sort of consistency and coherence. So it's not all about He's got no cells. Well, my my problem isn't <laughs> my problem isn't. It's partly about the CSO and it's partly about about I think that goes too far. But it's mostly about the actual story, which is odd because it's Robert Holmes, and I'm pre-programmed as a Doctor Who fan to adore everything Robert Holmes has written. But I've seen him do auto. I think the Autons were better in Spearhead from Space. I oh, think I they were agree. More, more frightening. <clears throat> but then I love Spearhead from Space. Takes the idea behind the Autons and does it in a very simplified way. Mm-hmm. If the all if the nesting consciousness can animate any plastic, mm-hmm. we see very few examples of it actually doing so in Spearhead from Space. Yeah. So from that perspective, Spearhead from Space is a very straight down the line story. Mm-hmm. Whereas Terror of the Autumn seems to be saying to me, Okay, you know what the story is. The nesting conscious is gonna mm-hmm. send down its globes, animate some autons and try and invade so you know what the story is, so we don't need to tell you what the story is, and here we'll just have fun with the sort of animating plastic but element. I, I just wish he'd got to the natural conclusion of each set piece before moving on to the next mm. one. It just felt like it was too truncated, each set piece. Oh, I know what you're saying, of, but I'm... sort of didn't have that development. But I'm saying that whereas Spearhead from Space told a story, Terror of the Autons is assuming you know the story, and it's like a sketch show instead. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Simon, mm. Terror of the Autons. Well, if Spiros from, from Space is Doctor No, then this is Live and Let Die. Mm. It, it's just kind of, as you say, <laughs> it's just big fun. And Moonraker. there's not, a, well, I'm sorry, but there is not a dull moment. Because it's just little, it's like a multi-course meal. It's yeah. just yeah. all these lovely little pieces. And, mm. and, uh, and I don't think, I don't think it, takes much scrutiny no i think if you're looking for that sort of story you're not going to get it but if you're looking for something that that occupies you for the whole time you're watching four solid episodes there's no filler i think you're right that possibly possibly it's one of those stories where if you watch it Mm. one episode per week Mm. without being able to see what you watched last week then actually that would probably improve it because mm. it is very exciting and is very kinetic and it drives you forward. Yeah. Whereas Spearhead from Space, it's possibly easier to watch Spearhead from Space in one 90-minute chunk. Mm, absolutely. And unfortunately, this is how I watched these stories mm. are in one 90-minute chunk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's probably coloured. I didn't watch I Terror of the Orton's, though, till, well, through this podcast, I didn't right. watch it till fairly recently. I okay. knew the Target okay. novel, and it was okay. my favourite Target novel. Right. So I didnn't watch it. <clears throat> oh, we forced you to, didn't we? Yeah, you yeah. lent me, you lent right. it to me, and I was not blown away, but I just fell in love with it. I mean, well, even with the crappy effects at the end. Well, the other thing that might might be the case if I watched it on video, I'm not sure if I've actually watched the DVD yet. No, so I watched it on div- video, which was recolorized mm. or colorized. Mm. Um, and maybe maybe that's tainted the way I see it because yeah. the colorization was like miraculous and great, but it it was still very garish and it still is on DVD. Per, per, it looks orange and very. Yeah. Yeah. It's better on it's DVD, kind of a... but it's not perfect. But I think that lends itself to the story, to be honest. Mm, absolutely, yeah. it gives the pictures a cartoonish quality that's there in the story. Yeah. 
And to be honest, although people have mentioned the CSO, the fact that the colorization's not perfect means it's less of an issue here. Than, Since when has CSO story? been an issue? Yeah. Hasn't when, been an issue for the last how many years? When they did the kitchen. Yeah. I think that was the, that's no, no, the main... No, no, I'm just saying, <laughs> does anyone watch old Who and say, oh God, look at that CSO? Only with the kitchen scene. Yeah. Okay. When, when they CSO <laughs> something that could just easily be the corner of... Yeah. They, they could film it in the Doctor Who office. Or in the Doctor Who, like a canteen somewhere. Yeah. But it's obvi- it's obviously used as a sort of test piece for CSO to see if they can do it for sets. Oh, and okay. they can't. No, no, no. And I think that's unfortunate. The red the CSO, I you know, I have no problem with CSO no. but it has to be used at the right time mm. and I think I think that, that didn't work. And it was a really, the rap really exciting just... moment as well. Mm. But it's sort of compromised by the fact that she's clearly not anywhere. <laughs> she's just <laughs> Just there, and yeah. they've got another layer of CSO, which is the doll mm. leaping off. So yes. suddenly you're moving from a CSO of a conventional domestic kitchen to CSO of a monster, yeah. and it clashes in the middle. And oh, you think the, George but, Lucas would have learned by that? But there you? are better. There are great things. The 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 death of what's his name in the chair. Mm. That's a really a really frightening moment, mm. and the daffodil moment is really good. So that, that is horrible. Yeah, yeah the, the policemen are really good. And that's the stunt which goes wrong where he rolls down the, the quarry. Yeah, yeah. That's still fantastic piece of television. Now, that's yeah. great. The Autons themselves, yeah. the design, they I don't know why they didn't just go with the spearhead from space costume. No, I like the redesign. But they just looks they they look like men wearing masks. Yeah, but <laughs> what I like about the design is it has that clown quality. Oh, no, so I liked the um I like the carnival masks. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't like the autons underneath them. So when they take take off the carnival masks, they've they've got vacuum formed auton faces. It's uh, a shame okay, they yeah. weren't actually the autons formed yeah. in that way. Yeah, yeah. The, car- the carnival masks were great. Because really nothing creased. underneath. But because but obviously in this instance they're not supposed to be shop mannequins. Mm-hmm. No, but, before they have no, but I mean, but the I mean the actual autons in the spare room space, not the shop mannequin ones, but the. The ones with the, the ones in the yeah. thing, yeah. And I think they, I think they were intended to be that, but it's a bit like the the Sontarans. Yeah, yeah. Slowly, yeah. the the first mask is fantastic in the time. Oh, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. It yeah. sort of degenerates until mm. you get to invasion of time. But the, mostly, you get them in the carnival masks. Yeah, and that's really, and those that are is great. great. That is good. A, I think the um, I was really disappointed when character options didn't get around to a toy of oh, that yeah. before they stopped doing the classic series. Mm. I thought the climax was slightly botched, which seems yeah. to be people running off off a bus and the master's wearing a mask and gets shot but doesn't yeah. get shot. I'm not quite sure that holds up, but I'm willing, you know, it's fine. It's, it's doing an awful lot of things, so, this, yeah. this story. It's bringing the season back hmm. with a pretty much a bang. Yeah, yeah, it and is. And yeah. introducing characters mm-hmm. and, yeah, it's just... It's a bit... It, it gives and me again, a headache. <laughs> well, again, <laughs> though, it's got Robert Holmes doing... It's quite light in mm-hmm. ways, but... Yeah, it's got Robert Holmes doing interesting characterisation, though, mm. which he's always done. Mm. And although those characters are only sketched in slightly, and a lot of them you don't see an awful lot of, yeah. you get a real feel for the people, yeah. even though they're obviously done in a very the, colourful way. It's really interesting, uh, Lee not being here. He's, he's started a film club at the library where he works, and we watched um, Amelie last night mm-hmm. and you can talk about it again but one of the points he makes is how the characters are introduced 
very short, very quirky ways. Mm. It's, it's quite simplistic, but to a point where you immediately know who that person is and yeah. what their foibles are. I'm thinking and from that yeah. you can get the texture of the person. I'm thinking in Terror of the Autons, the the character who's about to die, but you <laughs> he's characterised by the contents of his lunchbox. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he's got a boiled egg, which for some reason always sticks with me. Yeah, like, I really hate the idea of boiled eggs in my lunchbox in case I get mm. tissue mm. compressed. And the circus owner is pretending to be a flamboyant Italian. Brilliant, yeah. It's another layer to it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it is it is simplistic, and as I say, it doesn't take too much analysis. Mm. And if, you know, people want to think it's overrated or, or whatever, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, it's not trying to be spared from space, is it? No, I just wish it was a little bit. Okay, that's fine. And there is, after all, a reason it came second. Mm. And that reason being the demons. <laughs> oh, sorry, can I just go back? Oh, Joe, on, Joe yeah. Grant, I love that line about, I'm going to go off and make it. What, can you go off and make some coffee? She says, yes, okay, I'll go make a list. I just love that line. <laughs> Her introduction, actually, for a new companion yeah. to come in and botch up the doctor's experiment. And for him to be saddled with her. Yeah. It's a really interesting way of introducing mm. a companion at this point. Yeah. Because by the 1980s, that becomes a kind of a standard yeah. that the doctor's getting saddled with people he doesn't want to be, yeah. even though he's traveling and they're coming with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a problem because if the doctor's taking people traveling, you'd think he'd want them to be there and they'd want to be there. But with Joe Grant here, it's she wants to be in the job, but she doesn't care that the job's with him. No. And he certainly doesn't want her, but they're sort of saddled with each other. And it's a great and really interesting way of starting off a relationship that's going to become one of the best Doctor Companion relationships in the entire series history, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the demons then. Weird Bean. It may have a cop-out ending and Nora Batty's stockings, but this is an awesome gem. Miles Northcott. For many, the epitome of the Pertwee era. This was an oddity for Doctor Who, focusing as it did more on magic and the occult than science, despite all of John Pertwee's comments to the contrary. Some brilliant model work, one of the best location shoots ever, and some incredibly quotable dialogue. Love it. Jim Hall. By far the least disappointing of the Doctor Who stories. <laughs> By far the least disappointing of the Doctor Who stories that can't possibly live up to their hype. Hang on. Okay. He's saying that there are some Doctor Who stories that are so revered, there's no way they can be that good, and this is the one that gets closest to it. Okay. Uh, Rob Irwin, my number one of the season. First read as a Target novel, and I was going to point out that it couldn't have been first read in any other way, could it? Script. Okay. No, he's saying his intonation is first read as a Target novel. I know, I was being silly. Oh, yeah. First, read as a target novel, and I loved the spooky atmosphere. When I loiter, when I loiter, when I later saw it as a TV episode, a videotaped off the TV, yeah, a videotaped off the TV by a mate. It was all in black and white due to the story not being fully available in colour, so the TV station showed it all in black and white, which I think enhanced the mood of the episodes. Mm -hmm. That said, I do sense this is a very Marmite kind of episode in fandom. 
David Kitchen, hard to beat this classic Pertwee adventure with a great story, great characters, the classic about using psionic emotional energy to control the demon, Azal being destroyed by the emotions behind something as powerful as a self-sacrifice makes perfect sense. <laughs> Steve Herr, scary is this story's word. My VHS copy of this was even ropier, but I think the black and white benefited this story. Bok still gives me chills. <laughs> Dylan Reese. This is supposed to be a classic, but I don't get it. The regulars are on fine form, but this has to be one of the least captivating Who stories of all time. <laughs> Give me the twin dilemma any day. One of the worst Doctor Who stories ever. Wow. 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 And he's, he's not going to buy the Black Archive copy. He's on a roll. I'll show the autumn. Whenever it gets written. <laughs> <laughs> And you'll know better than us when it's going to get yeah. written. Brendan Day says, Nearly four episodes of Pertwee Perfection, Sleepy Village, Magistrate, Unit in full five rounds rapid action, and a convincing and scary villain, only to be let down by the love and magic conclusion. So, going back to what Rob Irwin said, the first time I saw it was all in black and white on a pirate video as well. And in... All in black and white. The mm. demons is really spooky. Really yes, spooky. Does try it. It's yeah, I don't think you can because also it's been vid fired over the. Well, you just put the TV onto black and white. Yeah, no, but the vid oh. fire is a different effect okay. again. Okay. You, if you deinterlace it to make it look Which like the, film. The first time I saw the demons or any of the demons was at a at a, an event called Doctor Who Returns to Wiltshire in Swindon. Oh right. And it was with Nick Courtney. And the Dalek from from <laughs> Swindon, and they showed two episodes on the big screen. I think it was that and and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Just single episodes or whole? Yeah, stories? well, they showed orphaned episodes because this was before oh, okay. color. They before they'd have got everything back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First That's, time I saw it was the BBC Two polarization okay. yeah. podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think the Demons really works in color. And really works in black and white. But I think you get an entirely different experience from each. Mm. In black and white, the feel of the story... Obviously, it's exactly the same yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. But the feel of it in black and white is a bunch of people coming together to fight something really evil. Mm -hmm. Whereas in colour, the feel of it is a bunch of actors who really enjoy one another's company going <laughs> off to a pub in the countryside yes. and making a television programme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get more Night of the Demon when it's yes. black and white. Yes, absolutely sort of, you do. Sort of that funny. But this is the whole thing, and we talked about this on the Zeus part, is that the demons feels like a feels like something that Doctor Who does a lot. And actually, if you look through the entire history of the series, it does it very rarely. Mm -hmm. Which is it you know, Doctor Who's sort of bread and butter is alien invasions because mm. it's easier to make stories on earth and also the audience gets more out of stories set on earth because there's more identification for the audience but how often does the doctor actually end up in a village doing a midwich cuckoos on it yeah very very yeah. rarely actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so and this is the best example and mm. for a certain kind of viewer of which i'm very much one Doctor Who in a village with an alien menace where you can't run off down the high street or you know there's not some military barracks or something yeah. just around the corner or whatever 
in a village where you're isolated, mm. that ups the ante. And so the demons, in spite of whatever issues certain people may have with it, and in spite of the fact that it's not as good as its reputation probably suggests, it's still one of those stories that I just, I couldn't in all good conscience say it's a 10 out of 10 story. But by the same token, there's no other story that I could just sit down and bong on on Sunday afternoon mm. and enjoy more than I enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Simon? Yeah, it's just iconic, isn't it? That's the thing. It's just got, I mean, I prefer it to the Satan Pit, which is essentially the same. It's got the, the, of the occult. With mm. it's got the kind of occult subtext to it, or not even subtext mm. text to it. Occult versus science. Yes, yeah. And and it's an episode that it, it's well. There's me saying it's it's like something else, but it kind of it's it's a one-off, and I love the one-offs, mm. which is why I like Terry the Orton's as well because it's well until they remade it as the Time Monster, <laughs> yeah. sort of badly. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, so, Matt. Well, well, I've got a strange relationship with it. It's not my favourite Doctor Who story ever, even though I do talk about it quite a lot. And there's a particular reason why you're talking about it, and you might as well actually say why you well, mentioned it, the Black Archive just now. Well, I, I pitched... So I did, um, I did a master's degree in the history and literature of witchcraft, and I was considering pitching for the Black Archive, and I was trying to work out which story to go for. I don't know what's more amazing, the fact that you did a master's masters in masters. witchcraft or the fact that me and simon didn't both respond to that news with "Ooh, get you <laughs> and so um i decided to pitch for this story because i could then connect the witchcraft and demonology that i'd learned about in my masters in witchcraft and demonology with with the story and gave it gives it another angle so i am writing the the back archive on this i have two does years, it work i have two years to write it so i'm hoping that the black archive is still going in two years yeah time. i've so got three or four to write d- about this at the moment i'm writing it for myself i have a good feeling fun. i think it will be yeah. yeah yeah um so i've got that relationship but also the reason i chose it is because i grew up maybe 15 minutes away from oldbourne where it was filmed and when i learned to drive um a friend of mine and i would go out Location backing, local, local, and Oldbourne was the first one we looked for, and it was, and it's an extraordinary place to visit for a Doctor Who fan. You have exactly, it looks exactly the same, the church, the pub, mm. the village green, mm. and then we went on a, a wander up a track next to the church, not knowing what was up there, and actually came across the Barrows. It's about half a mile up the track, so it's almost like a Doctor Who. Feature, it's like going to a Doctor Who museum, but yeah. it's all dedicated to one story. Yeah. You don't have to pay to get in. And it's amazing. And this is entirely coloured the way I, I see the story. So like JR, I'm a sucker for, for villagers under siege. Um, there's there's something about the kind of the nuclear quality of a village. You have mm-hmm. the church at the centre and you have the pub and mm-hmm. and you have a, a crazy vicar. And these were all these are all very Avengersy things that work. Yeah, They're yeah. all very John Windermy things that work. You talked about Midwich cookies. I'm also a, a nut for things like Hammer and. Did you just say the Midwich cookies? Cookies. Oh, cuckoos. Sure, he said cookies. He didn't talk properly, Simon. You must have noticed no, no. that. Cookies. Actually, so just I want to write to, a book called The Midwich Cookies. Just to completely interject at this point with something completely unrelated. We're talking okay. about living near Doctor Who locations, and this isn't even about living near a Doctor Who location. There's somebody who listens to this podcast 
called, I don't know if it's Teo or Teo Dimov. Mm. He's actually Australian, but he lives, oh, I can't remember where it is, somewhere in Europe. And he's a. I've upset an awful lot of Australians this episode, haven't I? Well, <laughs> but he's like a pop star. Um, and he releases his videos on YouTube and they mm. get thousands of hits and what have you. And his latest one, the title of which escapes me because he, uh, I only briefly saw it today and I only found out about it today. But his latest one is recorded on the location that they used for a town called Mercy. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so if you look up T.O. or T.O. Dimov, T.E.O. D.I.M.O.F. Mm-hmm. on YouTube or whatever. Okay. And go and wow. listen to his stuff, which is, it's not my sort of thing, but I enjoyed it. Okay. So, you know, wow. it's it's kind yeah. of, it's kind of pop music with a sort of flamenco favour. It's yes. not a million miles away, actually, from a sort of slightly flamenco version of um, Momo Tempo, mm-hmm. to be honest. So if you like that, chances are you might even like this. But it's well worth going to look to see somebody standing out the front of um, the village in a town called Mercy singing a pop song. <laughs> Anyway, that was a completely random detour, but you just yes. made it pop into my head, so okay. I thought I'd bring it up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so yes, yeah, so this is why I this is why I like the demons because it's entirely coloured by my, and this is going to form part, I hope, of the book. So the last chapter is going to be about. I mean, it's something I've written for you on who as well, but I wrote about the awakening because the demons have been taken. Oh, but the yeah. awakening is exactly the same. I visit <clears throat> the village, mm. and there's something about visiting the location and how that changes the way you see see an episode so, and not many I don't think that's been written about <laughs> before this kind of because location backing is a, is a thing mm. and it must it colour must it colours the way yeah. yeah and I find that quite, so there's going to be a sort of psychogeography I'm uncomfortable using the word hype with Doctor Who right because hype in, in suggests that uh, stories and, and, and sections of Doctor Who are advertised and promoted mm. To make them more than what they are, and I think all over promoted, de- over promoted, yeah. And I yeah. think with like, like the demons, I think affection is a better word. Well, I, I yeah. don't have personal relationships with these stories, yeah. and I don't think you can. Oddly, with the demons, I think the demons could almost form an episode, an essay in hating to love, because in the nineteen nineties there was a major backlash against Pertwee, mm. and the demons was at the the top of that backlash because mm. of mm. Pertwee's pomposity and his. His Toryness, and because this yeah. is the paradigm unit yeah. family story. But actually, looking at Pertwee, this is the story where he gets his pomposity gets punctured. Mm. Mostly, if you look at uh, Miss Hawthorne and and the, the third Doctor. Oh, sorry, and their relationship. Miss Hawthorne's always right. So she's saying she's she's talking this sort of magical occult stuff, mm. and she always turns out to be right. And the third Doctor's always wrong. The third mm. Doctor's the mm. one that gets it wrong. And what's and actually... Sort of saves the story. But what, another thing that's really interesting about it that I think seems to get forgotten is that this, more than any other, is taking the unit family out of their comfort zone mm. and finding <laughs> that they're just as comfortable <laughs> elsewhere as well. It yeah. takes the unit family out of their comfort zone and Sticks into orange, in a... orange dado jackets. <laughs> and a pub. <laughs> and uh, and Morris men. Oh, the Morris men. My really God, good. Morris men really turning good. up in Doctor yeah, Who. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. so, I'm also a sucker for, and I've written about this today, The Wicker Man and, and folk mm. horror. And this predates The Wicker Man, but it's the same, it's the same sort of 
there's something in the air at mm. this time about about customs and folk customs and and things and like isolation them and isolation and what the demons does is it turns up in 1971 on the cusp of the technological revolution mm. that gave rise to things like the internet ultimately mm-hmm. and it it's being watched by an audience who are still used to little 12-inch black and white tellies in the corner of the room replacing their radio sets. And it arrives at a time when people's relationships with their neighbours were still stronger than their relationships with anybody else, family or anybody else, where society was still based in tiny little pockets Mm. of Mm. social networks Mm. that just involved the people that you'd see in your everyday life. And by setting it in a village, it kind of seems to symbolise that relationship that everybody watching it would recognise, regardless of whether they lived in a village Mm. or a street in a bigger town. And it sets, it sort of seems to sort of slightly presciently set the idea of the technological revolution that was forming at the time against this sort of idea, not of magic and not of occult, mm. but of personal relationships being more being more um, valuable than relationships with technology, which is kind of where we're heading, which is... So this, the demons, is kind of the antithesis of the Cybermen. Mm. And also, also, I'm a bit perverse in that when the series came back in 2005, what we were supposed to find normal and natural were London council estates mm. and, and office and uh, mm. tower blocks. Yeah. Whereas I find this normal and natural. Yes, so I'm grounded yes. by villages rather than council yeah. estates. Um, I didn't grow up in a particularly pretty village, but I grew up in a, in a village attached to a town. No. Um, so... I was kind of craving with Russell T Davis craving this kind of, this yeah, kind of yeah, more yeah. local. I mean, where mm. where the relationships well, be, between characters are more recognisable. You, know, you, you know, grow up in a small village, you have these the big fish in a small pond situation yeah. where you get these big characters. Yeah, you know. And I also wonder whether cause, more little little Britain because I listen I listened to um, the the Canadians when they did <clears throat> they did a sort of a ranking of of all the stories in this kind of shoot-off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the demons did really badly, and everybody agreed that the demons was really awful and bad. And I just wonder whether, on this one occasion, maybe it's a, it's an English thing or a British thing. Maybe. That we, yeah. we do have this kind of this kind of instant recognition well, the of thing this is... setting. It's like the Avengers. We have this kind of mm. instant, instant affection or recognition of this setting, and we can it's recognize this as being yeah yeah well the thing of it is everybody who lives in a town has Mm. been to a village and everybody who lives in a village has been to a town Mm. but but which one of those two so and this is why the demons and the awakening and the android invasion are set in villages and why rose and aliens of london and rise of the side men are set in a town Mm. because you know it's just the other side of that coin but you've got to look at the two locations and say which one of those says more interesting place to base your film yeah or your story from a tv series and it's village every time yeah because a town a city a housing estate is almost intrinsically not interesting 
either through diversity or through architecture, whereas a village is almost intrinsically interesting through both. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think, well, I mean, unless anybody's got anything they really need to bring up about the demons to add to all that. No, I'll write it down in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's a nice enough listing, though. I think it's worked out fairly well. Well, the way the stories have come up is... I think we said interesting things about these stories that oh, yeah. will probably inform and educate and, well, the way and the, entertain, perhaps. The way the voting went, Colony in Space was far behind, Claws of Axos and Mind of Evil were very close in the middle, and then Terror of the Autons and the Demons were quite close at the top, yes. but there were big gaps between the top two and the next two and the bottom one. Yeah. And I don't think any of us could, inst- although we perhaps have personal Mm, yeah. reasons for I, I fully accept my fondness for colony and space is an unusual and, yeah and, I, I think yeah. the order that they've come up is pretty inarguable mm-hmm. really yeah in spite of anything we've said about preferring a colony and space of the mind of evil well, by the way we've talked about them yeah but yeah I think that pretty much it season 8 then I mean in the pantheon of Doctor Who I mean, I know we talked about it in general terms at the start, but in the pantheon of Doctor Who, I think as a whole season, it's definitely in my top half, probably in my top third, maybe bordering on my top quarter. I like season eight. It's a, a, a not a absolute favourite of mine, but a favourite of it's mine. It's what, what you would describe as solid. It doesn't have the pyrotechnics of the Hinchcliffe seasons or... Maybe even season nine. He says, trying to remember what's in season nine. The mutants, the time monster. Oh, <laughs> David Dalek's oh. Curse of Peladon and the Sea Devils. Okay, this is a very solid period of <laughs> the show without real pyrotechnics. So yeah, I mean, you know, you're in safe hands. You know what you're going to get. And the demons are for me as a highlight because it's unusual and you don't know what you're going to get. I think they pretty much do everything well here, yeah. though, and yeah. I don't think. I mean, taste is one thing, but I think I don't think you can argue with how well they're doing it at this point. The risk can. <laughs> yeah. Is there an argument for saying that a couple of the stories are over long? They could have got another story in there. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, that's how they were doing Doctor Who at this point, and I think things outstay their welcome less often here than they do elsewhere. I think Colony in Space deserves its six episodes mm. because of it almost becomes a series in and of itself, in the way it deals with its characters. It's a series you can live in. Mm. Mm. So I think on the whole, we've all kind of agreed that season eight might not be the most spectacular Doctor Who, but it's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. Well, in that case, we'll leave it to next week when, I don't know which of us are going to be here, but we're going to be talking about the time of angels and flesh and stone and getting back into series five. I'm free. You're always free. Yeah, and me. You were supposed to be the guy who came in when nobody else was available, and now you're turning up more often than Lee does. <laughs> okay. It's my very actually, busy boy at the moment. Which might actually boy. say more about Lee than it does about yes, you. Yeah. Until then, then... I was Matt. I was Simon. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.
Sorry, Australia. I'm not.